Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode, it's that C for classic, known as Sleeping Beauty. cinema to the letter we break down the very nature of cinema letter by letter for each episode of a film miniseries topic we cover six films that fit a c for classic i for indie n for new e for egregious m for masterpiece and a for atypical who doesn't love an acronym am i right i am thomas here recording live from sleeping beauty castle that's right in disneyland i'm at the very top of that particular place uh it's very lonely here a lot of the staff comes up. I keep asking for Goofy, and he doesn't come up here. I'm so pissed off about it. Uh, hello, I am Brian, and uh, <clears throat> I don't think my son likes your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Welcome, everyone, to uh, our inaugural full episode of our third season uh, this one being uh, about Disney, as we announced in our previous little mini-episode that we released the previous week. And um, I think it's fair, like, we said this in our mini-episode, but I really want to emphasize it here for the first big episode of the season. Um, we do not condone everything the Disney company does. <laughs> We're not going to be effusively praising Disney as a corporation as much as examining the wide breadth of their film output especially you know uh we're recording this mere like moments after the sag strike officially ended uh we should mention that just oh you i am you, you aren't what you, you weren't aware <laughs> Wait, what yes Wait, they've reached what? a deal like moments before we started recording oh shit. um yeah <laughs> real time <laughs> brian Von said. i was reading before we started this episode so um yeah i didn't see that that's hell yeah okay Yes, Sorry, go on. Yes, but, you know, <laughs> Disney is one of many studios who have been treating not just actors, but, you know, writers and visual effects artists visual unfairly. Effects. Yep. Uh, even just people who run their fucking theme park. Guys, yeah. they make the most money for you, usually. <laughs> just, like, yeah. don't pay them below minimum wage or whatever bullshit you want to do. Right, and just all the horror stories you hear of, like, working at Disney and stuff like that, which I've heard of from, like, people I know. Yeah, Disney's not a great company but you know i mean they have put out a lot of movies and you know I, I think there's a reason they have become like an institution like a, an american institution and um yeah it, it, movies i don't know <laughs> this goes all the way back with disney uh given their namesake walt who uh, we'll be talking about today because this is one of, uh, you know, we decided very firmly when we were going to do our C for Classic for the season, we wanted to do one where Walt was alive, which would have been right. all the way up until 66, he passes away, so pretty much mm -hmm. anything uh, that he was involved in, like Jungle Book prior, we figured. Right. Um, and, you know, it's important to talk about Walt Disney is a fascinating just figure in his own right, given, obviously, you know, he managed to create this company um, with 
the help of various people he didn't either pay fairly or correctly <laughs> credit for certain right. things. He is fascinating just because, like, the image that I had of Walt Disney ever since I was very young was just like, oh, he's the guy who was, like, sort of the grandfatherly figure. The guy who sort of was behind all of these great characters, like Mickey Mouse and all these other people. And right. it's very curious, especially, you know, when you read up more about Walt Disney and uh, his, like I mentioned, sort of the, the big labor practices in particular were a big thing for him. Uh, like I watched uh, as part of like weird research, this movie, The Reluctant Dragon, which I don't know if you have you heard of this. Or are you aware of what this is? No, it doesn't know. Does not ring up at any bells. So it follows this guy Robert Benchley, who was a real like satirist and comedian and stuff like that. Basically, going to the Walt Disney Studios to like pitch this titular premise of the Reluctant Dragon. So it's a lot of him walking around the like Walt Disney Studio lot of the time. Um, and talking okay. to people who claim, like, oh, I'm an animator, I'm a sound effects artist, but really I'm an actor, because we're not going to have those people out here, particularly the animators who were striking at the time. Right. Okay. Yes. Right. So, it's very much a propaganda machine movie, just about, like, wow, the Walt Disney Studio is so great, and it's all about him trying to find Walt by the very end of it, who's just, like, in a screening room, like, yeah, do this, do this, I'm smoking a cigarette, yeah, okay, let's play The Reluctant Dragon, which we apparently made in the time that you were at the studio. Like, in the afternoon, we managed to finish The Reluctant Dragon, the premise the guy was going to pitch to us. It's really huh. weird. Strange, yeah. Strange. <laughs> but that's the kind of, like, imagery support. If you think, like, right now, like, oh, Disney, and they're, like, propaganda machines, and they're, like, image-focused stuff, that's been going on since yeah. the beginning, guys. It's been a thing. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Yeah, and especially I mean, growing up in Florida, I feel like I got I got so much of that. I don't know about you, but I got like so much of just like that. Like Disney is a very like family company, and all just all of that propaganda stuff that they have. Yeah, just been doing so for so long. Right, and particularly with any clips that they would show of what would be stuff from like his openings for like the Wonderful World of Disney and the World of Color and stuff like that. Where it just right. like, oh, hello, everybody. Here's a look at our latest picture that's going to be coming out soon. Um, and stuff like that. That he had right. that kind of like grandfatherly image about himself. The more you look into it, especially even like with this movie we're going to be talking about, it's weird how despite the fact that this is like the one we chose for around the time Walt was like working on stuff. At this time, he was very distracted uh, from like Sleeping Beauty. Uh, because he, like, around 55, like, in the 50s is where Disney starts really getting away from sort of, like, production, like, film production stuff and going way more into, like, the theme parks or television specifically, um, where that's, like, the new toys that he gives a shit about. And he was not right. very satisfied, apparently, with Sleeping Beauty by the time it like, wrapped up production. Very weird to think about, considering, yeah. like, th this movie, I think... I mean, you and I were kind of talking, and we'll, we can get a bit more into this. I think this is one of the most stunning animated movies ever made perhaps mm -hmm. um it is so weird to think that yeah he he was not happy with it because it's it's gorgeous it's incredible it's it's a masterpiece i would say right and you know we we've said before that like if we do another disney season it'll probably be specifically like the walt disney animation filmography which if you're unaware basically the big major productions made by walt disney animation are part of like a sort of canon there's i believe 61 movies as of a recording, 62 with Wish. So it's like pretty much like from Snow White to the upcoming Wish, which I think is opening like right. the week we're putting this episode out. 
I believe. I think so, yeah. Uh, right. So there's those are the official kind of like big ones. How do you feel about especially like the Walt era of this? So like from like Jungle Book like prior all the way because uh, we we've talked about this many times about like our our sort of different rankings of the Walt Disney Animation canon and stuff like that. How do you feel about this specific era when Walt was around for those films? Well, it's very interesting, I think, for me because I didn't really grow up with like the early Disney movies at all. Um, I mainly grew up just watching like the Renaissance movies and right. and then the two thousands movies, of course. Um, it wasn't until I think I was like in high school that I had watched like any of these older movies like Pinocchio or Dumbo or Bambi. Um, and I think mainly now I look back at them and it's a very mixed bag for me, I think, because I, I really love some of them. Um, in particular, like I rewatched Alice in Wonderland for this episode and Fantasia and I love like Dumbo, but like, I've never had an emotional connection to Bambi. Maybe I'm just like a monster, but like, it's never been a movie that like I I really like had an emotional attachment to, but the animation side of things I've become I think more interested in these movies because like I mean this old school animation is just so Disney now doesn't make two D animation and it it I miss it I I think I I like some of these movies and we can get into specifics of like which ones I you know we each prefer um but. It, yeah, I don't have, like, fun, nostalgic memories for it. It's more something I've discovered more as I've gotten older, I think. But, yeah, what about you? Do you have, like, a history with the, the early Disney movies at all? Did you watch them as a kid? I would say so, yeah, because I think, just to show a bit more of our, like, age difference, I don't know if you have this as much, but, like, the, the clamshell VHSs were very crucial. <sighs> I had the Lion King one, I think. Right. It was that one or Aladdin. I think it was it was only those two I had. Yeah, because, I mean, I remember I have very fond memories of, I mean, like, I, I grew up with some of these, like, all together as one package. I could tell that some of them felt different. I didn't really know that, like, oh, one was, like, from 1940 versus one from, like, 1992 or whatever. But, like, I grew up with, like, a mixture of, like, the Renaissance era and some of these older classics. I'd say particularly the biggest one is Pinocchio, if only because I have a weird thing where my grandmother had a massive Pinocchio collection. Not just Disney Pinocchio. But, like, any sort of different Pinocchio, like, figure or snow globe or, like, anything like that. I have, in fact, this little holographic Pinocchio thing that was, like, from this is my... Pinocchio and Geppetto. Right. And the cat. It might not translate to the zoom camera, but it, like, is holographic, right. so it moves. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. Yes, yes. So, uh, that's one of the things from her collection. I, I grew up very much with that movie in particular. And I still think that's probably my favorite of, like, that era Nothing else because that movie's like deranged. That movie's like a stream conscious nightmare. <laughs> it is, and that that is kind of like my the thing I like about a lot of these early Disney movies is how like kind of dark they are. Um, yeah, and like you know, as obviously like that goes in with the the fairy tales thing where fairy tales were those fairy tales are dark, but that is kind of the thing about it that I think attracts me to them more now is kind of just those really kind of weird, fucked up elements to it, which I, I, I just really love. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I think I would say, like, Pinocchio, um, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, 101 Dalmatians, Peter Pan, and another movie I'm going to talk about in a bit. Uh, those were, like, the ones I remember, like, this particular era that I watched a lot. 
when I was younger. Mm-hmm. You know, I did revisit some of these, um, you know, a couple of years ago and also in the last couple of days for this particular episode. And it's curious, especially, you know, there's some stuff that doesn't hold up about maybe some of those movies. <laughs> what? I don't, what do you I, mean? I, I don't know. I just finished Dumbo and I have a few notes. I'll Ooh, say. I have yeah. a few notes. Um, about yeah. some some characters who show up. <laughs> and, I mean, and there's also, like, there's just a bunch of other things, like the package films, which is, like, kind of key to, like, sort of the history of Disney animation, where, like, with Sleeping Beauty, it had come off of, like, you know, the big success of Snow White, the failure kind of Pinocchio and Fantasia, then rebounding with, like, Dumbo and Bambi, then the package films era, which, if you don't know, basically in the 40s because of World War II, after, like, between Bambi and Cinderella... It was just all these, like, movies that are, like, segments, like, anthology films. Where, like, we were, like, Saludos mm-hmm. Amigos, the ones with Donald Duck and the other two birds. Um, and just some other ones that have been completely lost to time. Were, were very much, like, prevalent because they were a lot more cost-effective. And then Walt kind of went back into it with, like, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and Lady and the Tramp, which were all big successes. Leading up to our movie, which, let's just play the trailer here now for Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty, sparkling with colorful spectacles, brimming with gay music and delightful new songs, filled with fascinating new Disney characters. I wonder, I wonder... You'll meet lovely Princess Briar Rose. I wonder why each little bird has a someone. You'll meet the most delightful fairies who ever wafted a magic wand. Flora. Follow me. Fauna. And Merryweather. And you'll see Maleficent work her wondrous witchcraft. Stand back, you fools! The fine art of animation becomes magnificent entertainment as Walt Disney brings one of the world's favorite stories to the screen. The management of this theater is proud to recommend this magnificent motion picture to every member of every family everywhere. So, uh, Sleeping Beauty uh, came out in 1959, uh, specifically January 29th, 1959. These January, you know, dump month releases. Weird January movie. <laughs> I can't imagine, like, it being January being like, all right, let's go see a, a elegant animated Disney movie. <laughs> well, that's the thing, is that this one coming out in 1959 was not originally the plan. Uh, because basically, uh, this is the 16th feature from Walt Disney Animation. Uh, interesting fact, sandwiched between Lady and the Tramp and 101 Dalmatians. So, two dog movies. Success with the dog movie. Kind of disappointed with the non-dog movie. And then, fuck, we gotta go back to dogs. 101 of them. <laughs> Bring them in. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's any dogs in this movie, right? I don't think so, no. I don't, I don't think recall. there are. Hmm. No, no dogs. There's plenty of other animal sidekicks. That's true. There's a bird? Couple birds. That's true. <laughs> yeah, so this feels definitely like very odd in the middle of that. And 
It uh, does. Even in general with like most of the other Disney movies, because that's sort of like the big factor of this one, is that Waltz uh, wanted to do a version of Sleeping Beauty ever since like 1938, apparently. He was like curious about doing uh, something based on that particular fairy tale. So then it, for a while kind of languished until eventually around 1950 when Cinderella came out and was a big success. Right. Well, it was like, mm-hmm. I want to do another sort of fairy tale story like that, but I want to make sure it's different. I don't want it to be just like the exact same thing as Cinderella, which to be fair, I'm kind of for because despite growing up with that movie a lot, that one doesn't hold up as well to me necessarily. Look, here's my confession with Cinderella. As much as I like a lot of aspects of that movie, I, I really disliked the the mice in that movie. Gus Gus, not a fan. Yeah, they're all so annoying. I like that the movie, a lot of the movie is like them just like fucking around, trying to avoid the cat, right? That's fun. Right. But it's just so much of that, and I can't deal with their voices. Yeah, that's it's not one of my favorite ones, Cinderella, necessarily. No, beautiful sequences, but it feels definitely more like... Yeah. When somebody is talking about a Disney movie for all, like, it's very typical, you know, sort of elements. Cinderella's kind of like the poster child. It's like the big sort of crowd-pleaser version of, like, a Disney princess movie, especially of that time. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, so he wanted to do something very different. And uh, you can tell with Sleeping Beauty, because I remember this one is one I definitely did watch at some point as a kid. But it wasn't one mm. that I immediately, like, loved as a kid. It was one I watched maybe a couple times, but I was just like, no, this is never, like, my particular thing. And honestly, I think that's just because, unlike a Cinderella, which has, like, a lot more goofy, cartoonish, like, sort of side characters and, like, some of the more familiar Disney songs, uh, Sleeping Beauty feels very different by comparison. It's it's a very, like, it almost feels like you're looking at a tapestry (laughs) come to life. (laughs) Yeah, and especially, like, that opening with, like, the all the guards and everything. Like, just, I don't know, just the style of it feels so different than Cinderella and does feel, like you said, like a tapestry. It's, it is just so elegant and extravagant. Yeah, to the degree that it was actually directly inspired by um, the unicorn tapestries, which are over at uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. John Hench, one of the big animators, just like, let's do something based on this. And I like that aesthetic a lot more, like, the older I've gotten. Every time I revisit this movie since I was a kid, I've gotten a lot more endeared to it, I think, because it does truly feel like you're just watching a piece of art come to life in a way that, like, the other, obviously, there's art to all the other Disney movies of this era, but they all look like Mm -hmm. these are very, like, incredibly accomplished cartoons versus this is, like, a painting that somehow has gained sentence. Yeah, and especially, like, I I did this thing a couple years ago where I watched all... 60 whatever Disney animated movies in a row and getting to this one it you do feel this like really big change in like in the style right like yeah they they as much as I love the animation style of those early movies they feel like cartoons right like they feel like what you imagine early animation of this time to look like and yeah I mean just the way that everything in this movie looks like I could talk about all of the the objects in this movie like just the trees. <laughs> I mean, just the trees in this movie look incredible. Yeah, and I think a big part of that, from at least my research, which admittedly I'm throwing out random tidbits I have in the notes here. There's so much about any individual goddamn Disney movie, um, particularly this one. I would actually recommend, uh, you know, we're on Talk Film Society. Uh, I would recommend the Dream a Little Deeper podcast, which is our, one of our sister shows. 
that basically is like every single episode just going in depth about each of the Walt Disney animated movies. Um, and they have a great episode about Sleeping Beauty. I'd recommend listening to that. I'm going to probably curb a fair amount of things from that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it feels definitely like Walt wanted to put so much into this one because one of the stronger traits about Walt Disney was how much he really wanted to innovate with animation. And you can tell like at this particular point after, especially being like hogtied to like, we got to keep doing fucking package films for like a decade. He's like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to experiment, do some big things. Like this is one of the early animated films that's like had the soundtrack recorded in like stereo, uh, for example. Also it was shot with like an interesting, weird 70 millimeter version of animation. Like, I've heard screenings of, like, this over at, like, MoMA and stuff like that for the uh, the big, like, 70mm version. And you can tell, like, the it looks so wide. It looks like you're watching, like, sort of a stereoscope, which didn't exist for animation at the time. Right, yeah. I mean, you know me. I, 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 lo- I love aspect ratios. And it's in, like, it's wider than typical, like, widescreen. It's 255. Right. It's so wide and, like, just so... It looks so great. It, and all, like especially early on the scenes in like the in the castle just how much like stuff you can see like just horizontally is so it, yeah it just looks so incredible and so striking to the degree that like apparently that was a big problem with like the animators like the, this is the one that most of like the nine old men who if you don't know are like the main nine animators that worked with Walt from like the beginning until like Fox and the Hound pretty much like after Walt had died they were like right. yeah. they retired around that point Um, but they kept talking about how, like, this was the hardest one to possibly animate because, obviously, when you look at it, like, these characters are much more stiff than traditional, like, other Disney movies, and kind of have more of this distinctive style that we're referring to, and a lot of them said, like, we had to, like, animate on, like, paper that was even, like, bigger than we were used to. We had to fill up a frame of literal, like, goddamn paper (laughs) for, like, every individual bit of this movie, so it, it feels as if, like, a lot of that, like, blood, sweat, and tears comes through in the movie, even if, like, a lot of the animators, like I said at the time, like, Mark Davis, who's one of the great Disney animators, one of the nine old men, um, who was the main animator on both Aurora and Maleficent, had a lot of struggles with animating Maleficent in particular, because it's like, she doesn't interact with anybody, really, aside from, like, the raven and her minions. It's a lot of scenes of her, like, kind of pontificating and speechifying on her own. He's like, I don't know what the fuck to do with this, Walt. This lady barely moves. <laughs> she has, like, I can move her hands and, like, her facial expressions, but she's a very tall, like, covered in this, like, giant draping cloak character that I can't animate a lot with, like, flexibility. When she shows up in the movie, however, you're, like, such a striking character design, and her entrance is so iconic and everything. Just throughout, every time we get just her and her, like, layer, I'm just like, she looks so cool. <laughs> Like, just a really incredible character design, and, like, we'll get to maybe the coolest segment in any animated movie when she becomes the dragon. Uh, Yeah, I just think she's such an incredible character design. Those limitations for, like, a Mark Davis really allow him to pull out a lot more, like, okay, what can we do, like, with her facial expressions? What can we do with, like, her hand movements? The way she talks with her hands is, like, really well done. Um, And even... Just, like, her interacting with that raven, who also isn't, like, a funny animal sidekick. Like, the closest we get to that is, like, Sleeping Beauty's little animals that come out, and they aren't even, like, that cartooning in the grand spectrum of, like, Disney animated sidekicks, uh, animal sidekicks. And I think the raven is just a great example. Like, there's that bit where she's talking to him about, like, oh, these minions are an embarrassment to me, the mistress of evil. And the raven looks, like, very forlorn in a believable way. Like, she's like, oh. 
Mom's upset. It's a bummer that mom's upset. <laughs> the bird it has great animation and like it, as a character, and like I love like the shot when um, it, it's the shot when he finds out that Aurora is in the woods and it, it like peeks through the door, <laughs> and just like such a funny way that it peeks through the door where I'm just I don't know it gets me every time. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not also extremely cartoony animation, despite the fact that we're talking about like this bird evil villain sidekick. Like there's a version of this movie. Where that character acts a lot more like like bugs out his eyes like what it's well, Aladdin right right it's of course yeah yeah, yeah. It's, Where it's like uh, yeah. Gilbert Gottfried R.I.P. Oh my God she's sleeping over there I can't believe it look at her sleeping on the job it's a bad Gilbert <laughs> Gottfried but <laughs> oh man yeah but like there is no characters like that in this and and it's what's so interesting about this movie is that like this movie has kind of a regal quality to it yeah truly medieval as well i think that uh, the art style oh, yeah. helps with that because it feels like you're looking mm-hmm. at, oh this was a tapestry discovered in like 1685 england or whatever yeah. a castle it feels like a fairy tale come to life more in the way that cinderella does because cinderella just is a bit goofier but i think like doesn't really i don't know it they're different movies but like i, I do love the way that that this movie has is not serious though. Like I, I love the three, the three, what are they like? What would you call them? The fairy godmothers. The fairy godmothers. Okay, yeah. The the three fairy godmothers are like so fun and so like charming and like funny to watch together. And yet this movie isn't like too funny in in the way that some Disney movies can be. If that if that makes any sense. No, no, I agree with you. But at the same time, like this movie delivers some of the weird, like few subtle bits of humor. Like, my, I think maybe my favorite line of the whole movie is, I believe it's Flora, Verna Felton, who's one of the great Disney voice actresses, who's like, she's in Dumbo, she's the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland. Okay. And here she yeah. plays, okay. like, the, the red one. Right. Um, and that bit where she's putting the dress on uh, Meriwether, the blue one, and she's like, oh, this dress looks ugly. Oh, it's only because it's on you, dear. It's like, such a great, <laughs> yes. such a yes. subtle burn. <laughs> and then they just, like, fly away from it immediately. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many little moments like that that I love. And just with them as well, like, not even just, like, a moment I love is when, uh, is it Fauna? Is she the, not the blue one, not the red one, the the green one? Yeah. The the way that she, like, when she's baking the cake is, like, two eggs folded in and, like, fold in and you hear the crack. It's just so, yeah, so many great little moments like that that I love in this movie. Yeah, and I think like, those three are very crucial because, like, those characters in any other Disney movie would be very much, like, side characters who would have their own, like, little subplot going on. As opposed to really, I think, a thing that I've heard a lot of people complain about with Sleeping Beauty is, like, well, Sleeping Beauty and Prince Charming aren't really that, like, developed as main characters. And I agree, but also, one, I think that's the case with a lot of these characters, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they're very archetypal, a princess and a Prince Charming. Shockingly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But two, more importantly, the movie, I don't think, really dwells on them that much. It feels almost like we mentioned, like, Walt had already done sort of, like, the Cinderella, like, example with, like, her right. and her prince, who's far more, I would argue, like, a, a trifle of a person, even compared to, like, Prince <laughs> Philip here. But what I like is that they, they have them sort of being like, you're the catalyst. You're our MacGuffin, ostensibly, for this movie. movie. Right. Um, while at the same time making her, like, a fun Disney princess, I think, in her own right. 
this young girl who was raised by like three old weirdo ladies in the middle of the woods, <laughs> as far as she knows. And I think that adds kind of to her weird personality. It feels like she's very independent. Like they're kind of goofy and being weird. I had to kind of like kind of raise myself basically <laughs> to a cer- certain degree, but I love them at the same time. I kind of like that dynamic that she has. And I think that's what makes this more, much more interesting is like, she's going on with like the prince you know, doing the once upon a dream stuff. But really the main focus is on these three fairies trying to make sure that like their adopted daughter doesn't get kidnapped by an evil sorceress lady. Oh, right. Like this is what's so interesting about this movie is that it's, it's called sleeping beauty. Yes. And yet like, I would say these three, the fairy, fairy godmothers are the protagonists of the movie, basically. Like, they used, all of the movie is kind of handled through their perspective, and, like, it, it's... So it should have been called Three Fairies and a Baby, basically. <laughs> it should have been called right. Three Fairies and a Baby. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we are not, this is, we're not bringing up new ideas here of, like, maybe these old Disney movies had not the best representations of of women or, you know, of really any character of any of these kind of stuff. Though by contrast, great representation for people of color, clearly, right? In those, like nothing problematic or horrible whatsoever in any of those old movies. Yeah, how many um, how many of those Disney Plus disclaimers did you see? Oh, I saw quite a few of them. <laughs> Sleeping Beauty avoids that, I think mainly because it's less cartoony. Because cartoony right. in the Waltz era sadly often meant very bad stereotypes that we can very much exaggerate in a cartoonish fashion. Yes, which is one of the many reasons I do not like the movie Peter Pan, because it dwells on that. Oh, is there some bad stuff in there? Is there, is there some bad? <laughs> is there some stuff in there, maybe about Tiger Lily and her people? Oh, that's, man, yeah. I, so much of, like, the way that I view this movie, and I, I find so much of, like, the that kind of way that people view movies of, like, how do they fall in love in one scene? You know, whatever, all this stuff. It's like, I, I, in my view, I sort of view it as like fairy tale logic. You know, like when you're reading a fairy tale, you're not, it is sort of this, that imagination, imaginative sort of realm that you're kind of operating in where you're just like, I know this isn't real. This is a fairy tale. This is a heightened version of reality or, or what have you in the story. And I think that's how I view like this movie with, her but I, I do love like just her scene when she's in the woods just like frolicking around I, I think that like her and the animals are are so funny um like I love when the owl like steals the the hat and the coat and like dances with her I just, yeah I find that so sweet well, and to be fair it's not just him he like he's not doing the lion's share of that work because there's that squirrel underneath the hat sure that's two true, birds that's holding true. up that cape the two birds are important. And That's then the true. two bunnies in the boots, which I love. That's my favorite detail. And they, they're very good at dancing, despite the fact that they're just hopping <laughs> inside two shoes. They are. They are. But I love this whole entire section. It, it feels just so nice and sweet and, like, just... But also just feels like some, like, I don't know, the animation in this section of, like, the backgrounds, which are just so stunning with, like, the the all the... The, the the foliage that's there. I talked about like the trees earlier, but like literally there's five different kinds of trees in this movie where I was just like, look at that tree. It looks so good. I could stare at it for like an hour. Well, particularly <laughs> there's that one shot where Sleeping Beauty is almost like a precursor to like that one shot in the Hakuna Matata montage in Lion King where she's like walking on the log. 
with the animals. Mm-hmm. And then we like zoom underneath and we zoom all the way into the prints. Like that is an amazing shot, especially considering for like the time where one of my earliest memories of like behind the scenes stuff is as a little kid, like at the end of these VHSs, there would usually be like a little featurette about just like how this mm-hmm. was made. And there's a lot of like sort of the live action reference stuff, which was a thing with Sleeping Beauty, yeah. but also in particular that whole like, I don't know what it's called. Maybe it's like Vista Glide, whatever it is, where it's like nine layers of glass that have different like background elements together. Mm-hmm. I know what you're and talking then about. And you like zoom yeah. through it, like which happens a lot in these like earlier Disney movies. It's just like their signature basically is just like that fucking shot. And in this case, it's like with two moving characters in two different background settings. And like to the degree that I found out this whole sequence, where like everything from when she's like walking around outside to the end of like the Once Upon a Dream thing took two years to animate <laughs> jesus christ it, i have i've seen footage of like the them making these early disney movies a lot but like and, and animation in general just i don't understand how it's done and like i i can i can watch all these behind the scenes stuff i've seen the the miyazaki documentaries many times mm-hmm. and i'm just like it, it makes no sense it might as well be magic to me the way the animation is done it, it just it's so stunning and especially this movie in particular. Um, and like you mentioned that earlier section when like the, it zooms into to Prince Philip, like that's when like the widescreen just looks so great. And all these woodland uh, set scenes as well, like just looks so great. Cause you're getting just so much of like of the environment that like mm-hmm. you really just like soak in this setting Um which I love. I just love the aesthetic of like just the way the the woods look and how like big and mysterious they are. And again, all the trees and everything. I, yeah, it's, it's so great. Yeah. And with, with all that said, I think a, a big part of all this, obviously, like I mentioned, Walt, when he started doing this movie was very adamant about like when you do like such different concepts of what like an animated movie kind of be around this time. And I think that, like, longer production period that we're talking about where, like, this weird, like, there, there's so much stuff. Like, one of the original directors, I, I forgot the man's name, but he had, like, a heart attack early Jesus. into the production of this movie. So they had to, like, because we didn't say who the director of this movie is because there's four of them. And not all of them stuck around for the entire time. Uh, Clyde Jeromeny, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Wolfgang Reitherman I knew because he's, like, one of the nine old men. And he'd been mm-hmm. around for quite a bit. Um, Eric Larson. And Les Clark. Um, and we should also mention, of course, uh, like with any animated movie, particularly of this era, there's story by credits. But the whole thing with, like, the animation process, um, this is also still the case, I think, with, like, some, like, TV shows and stuff like that. But basically, an outline is written for an animated movie, and then individual animators kind of create the connecting material, particularly during the storyboarding process. Where certain animators are like, here, you like design like it is from point A to B with like a little comic strip thing, basically. Showing up all like the big shots and actions and stuff like that. And uh, this movie feels very much like, you know, with some of the other uh, Disney movies, you can kind of feel like, oh, this is like this particular animator's style, this particular thing. Like particularly with these nine old men, like that's Frank Thomas's right. style, or that's Ollie Johnson's style, et cetera, and so forth. This is a rare example where like, all of the characters feel kind of of a piece with this world. Even the most slapsticky character, which I just want to shout out, that jester dude is the best. <laughs> it's like my that boy. whole the scrumps <laughs> thing is so good with like the two kings. 
like getting drunk and that gesture just like drinking as much as he can like it's the most slapsticky stuff but like it fits very well in this world despite it being like the most silly stuff yeah and that scene that scene really does kind of come out of nowhere if you're not really like every time i watch it i'm like oh right there's a scene where the two kings like kind of fake drunkenly like fake fight and i just every time he grabs the fish and tries to kill him with the fish with like a sword is it just really gets to me one of my favorite details by the way the one of the funnier bits is him like realizing like oh this is silly i'm not gonna do that but he still takes the fish that he was holding like a sword and then sheaths it and yeah, he holsters it <laughs> oh, save that for later <laughs> shout out bill thompson is the voice of king hubert i love that one another one of those so great, great like disney guys just the, the bumbling dad archetype maybe my favorite archetype in any of these movies i think like it's becoming that just because i lo- I just think it's so funny I-, I love like when they're talking later and like it's when prince philip is like you know it is the 14th century which i love but <laughs> like <right. laughs> but when he's like you know yes father i should do whatever i want and and go marry that girl goodbye and then he says oh yes goodbye father oh wait and like it- it's just so great the rhythm of like all the dialogue scenes is so is so of its time right like it's just so weird and like fast and just like snappy um feels kind of screwballish which is like something like the disney movies tend to be a bit more like obviously cartoony like we mentioned but this feels more like a screwball almost thing of right just like a, a farce with like the kings in particular which is like they're very much in the dark these kings who by one of them was just like oh my baby um to protect her three ladies who are like in my company will raise her away from me <laughs> and um and the uh I, I do love that bit earlier on though the baby shower bit where um the young prince philip sees her in the cradle and just like who he will be betrothed to and he's like oh really yeah. <laughs> right and that's one of those like things where like yeah you're, you're watching and you're like oh that's kind of weird and then yeah he makes a great like from an animation perspective, what a great like face that he makes, and I, I mean that whole that whole sequence is really incredible. I, I just love that the, the way that it's structured and like how Maleficent comes in, and you know the whole like one oh, but she can do one more wish that will like uh, I forget the thing she says of like in, instead of dying she'll fall into a slumber. Uh, true love, I have kiss, a gift for the child. Yes. Like, <laughs> I, want, I want to shout her out now. Eleanor Audley, the voice of Maleficent, who was also the voice of Lady Tremaine, a.k.a. the evil stepmother in Cinderella. Um, which she has that perfect kind of like that time, that, that regality to her performance. Mm-hmm. Like the bit, even in that scene where like someone says like, you, you should not give a gift to my daughter or whatever. And she's like, oh, what an unfortunate situation. <laughs> I, yeah. And I love the way like she shows up. And everyone's like, oh, not Maleficent. Like, I, I just love the idea that, like, she's the witch and she lives here. We all, like, tolerate her. and We know she lives around here, but we just don't want her to show up. Every town has this. It's kind of like the town drunk. Like, we know that she's here. It's kind of <laughs> awkward. <laughs> right. Yeah. And just the way she enters of, like, the lightning strikes and then she just, like, appears. It's so great. It's a wonderful, like, motivation I love for because obviously with so many of these other like Disney villain characters, like they don't have like much of a motivation beyond evil necessarily. I just love the fact that she's just really upset. Like you guys were having a big fucking party 
where, like, the whole kingdom's here. Like, even the blacksmith down there is here. He never goes to anything. But you're inviting him, and you didn't invite me? All right, fuck all of you. Fuck you all. This kid is gonna get killed by a spinning wheel in, like, 16 years. Yeah, it's great. And uh, it's menacing and, like, horrifying. And yet, it, like, again, like, her design is so cool. I love all, like, the smoke when she's like, I guess, teleporting away, like all the smoke effects and everything are so cool. I, yeah, it's a, it's great. Yeah, and I think you can kind of tell with her, in contrast, like some of the other characters. A big interesting thing about this movie is because of like all the stuff I'm talking about, where like Disney was like so invested in it, and like making this big grander like production almost felt like a Disney's folly kind of thing, quote unquote, around the time. You kind of get the sense this is like the end of an era for animation, but you can see some of the transitional points. Uh, like, a big thing, a couple of animators like, got their start on this movie. One, uh, Don Bluth, who would later, of course, go on oh, yeah. to do, like, an American Tale and stuff like that. Got his early start doing stuff uh, for this movie. Um, as well as a guy named uh, Floyd Norman. Very uh, beloved in the Disney circles because he was uh, one of the first examples of, like, a long-time employee of Disney who was an animator who was black. Very cool. Uh, working on here, and he talked a lot about sort of, like, those issues with, like, a painting on a large canvas I was talking about earlier and stuff like that. And someone who I had no idea about that was very fascinating to hear, uh, Chuck Jones of Looney Tunes briefly worked on this movie. Okay. Because basically <laughs> I, I loved hearing, apparently the explanation was basically around this time, Warner Brothers was like, oh, you know, what's the big thing that's going to move the future of cinema? 3D movies. We're going to put course. all our chips into 3D movies, but we have to make cuts. So you know what? Animation department, gone. You're gone. You're out of here, Chuck. You don't have a job anymore. So he's like, crap. All right, where else can I go? I guess Disney? I guess I'll go over there. Right. And apparently the whole thing was because of the different production turmoils going on in this movie. He was there for four months in 1953. So like when this movie's in deep, like weird story development, he was just apparently sitting around in, at his office waiting for some kind of thing to do. The rumor is the only thing he kind of worked on is he maybe designed the Minions for Maleficent, which kind of makes okay. sense. They're a bit more cartoony. They feel like they would be not uncommon like a Bugs Bunny short, potentially. Um, but apparently, like, yeah. within four months, Warner Bros. was like, Chuck, we really regret doing the 3D, like, all in. It's not going to work out. We're going to bring back the Looney Tunes, and we're going to hire you and your animators back at your salary. He's like, fuck you, Disney. I'm out. I'm going back to WB. <laughs> God, that's so funny to think that they sent that late, the late night, like, you up text. Like, we, right. I miss you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Bugs Bunny emojis. <laughs> um, which I think is, like, a, a big thing. You can kind of see this feels like we're kind of transitioning out of, like, that classic Disney animation. Because I think by the time you get to, like, 101 Dalmatians, we're in full Xerox territory. Xerox, baby. Right. Hell the, yes. the rough pencil sketchy kind of animation that Don Bluth obviously would become famous for. You see a lot more of his imprints like on that particular movie. And obviously, like just because Disney needed to like cut back on costs at this point because he was so invested in like, oh, I got my theme parks and I've got my TV and I've got, I guess, a Sleeping Beauty movie that I abandoned that <laughs> ended up flopping hard. So, yeah, you, it, this feels very much like an end of an era kind of movie. It does, yeah, and especially, like, it's weird to think that, like, you know, watching this movie, you're just like, oh my god, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Did they ever make any other ones that look like this? And 
the next movie, 101 Dalmatians, is like polar opposite, right? It, it would it like, I don't know, it would be, it's like a band hiring like an orchestra and then making like a lo-fi self, like home recorded album or whatever. I mean, and I find some charm in that Xerox era. I think there's a charm, a scrappiness to those movies. To some 100%. Point. And yeah, 101% maybe. <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, the... I, I really like the Xerox style in, like, 101 Dalmatians and, like, in stuff like the Jungle Book and, and that. But, like, it really is, like, as it goes on into, like, the late 70s and 80s, that that style really starts to look, like, ugly. Where I think early on it looks very, like, unique and, like, oh, this is a new kind of style that they can... that they're doing. I would argue my favorite of that kind of style, though, is post-Walt dying with uh, Robin Hood. I think because that one feels a lot more madcap and a lot more kind of just like this is a very scrappy adventure where everybody's like barely <laughs> like holding together. You know, I've only seen that movie like once when I did my whole Disney run through. I, I yeah. should watch it again. I've yeah. It feels like weirdly the Disney Hangout movie. Yeah, but yeah, I mean that that sort of animation style, which like I would say my favorite of kind of that maybe is 101 Dalmatians because mm -hmm. I think like I, I don't know something about it in that movie in particular really like it, it really kind of meshes together for me like just everything about it well I mean you can just see it in the distinct ways like on paper say like Maleficent and Cruella de Vil the villain of that movie there's a lot of similarities you can tell in the design Mark Davis did animate Cruella de Vil as well uh, but you can tell he has a having a lot more fun with doing Cruella de Vil because it's much more of like a silly character going around like yeah. her cigarette prop, darling, and all this other stuff. In the bed. <laughs> the, right. yeah. Yes, and <laughs> with the big coat as well, contrasted with like her very skinny frame that's underneath it and stuff mm -hmm. like that. You can tell there's a bit more of like, that's more of a cartoonish kind of villain. Like she literally wants to kill puppies. That's like her whole motivation for like a coat. <laughs> As opposed to, like, Maleficent, despite feeling, you know, much more of, like, evil, she has horns and shit, she's demonic to some degree, um, at the same time feels a bit more, like, subtle and nuanced, which is weird to say about, like I said, a lady who turns into a fucking dragon by the end of this movie. Well, right. <laughs> yeah, and when she has the, the a line that, like, makes me, like, do the, like, the Marvel reaction of, like, yeah, just cheering when she's when she says... Now you shall deal with me, O oh Prince, and all the powers of hell. Yeah. <laughs> so fucking cool. Oh, man. Yeah, but, like, yeah, that style, the, the, the difference is very interesting, I think, because Maleficent does feel like a very regal type of, like, villain in this movie, whereas Cruella, like, it's always smoking, and there's, like, like, when she's smoking, it's, like, a green, like, gas, too, or, right. like, a smoke. So, like, yeah, it, it's really interesting to kind of see the contrast between, like, this movie and 101 Dalmatians, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I think you can tell also with this one, like a, a big difference in it, I think, is we should credit the music. This is a musical, um, like many of the Disney animated films at the time. But notably, it's not like, I know around this time, they would have gotten somebody like Oliver Wallace or one of those other like older, more much more kind of uh, classic Disney composers versus the guy, guy named George Bruns, who had been a musician, but this is his first composing job. And he was mainly put on after, to be fair, they had a bunch of different composers come on. This was originally going to be a lot more of like a 50s Broadway kind of score that Walt was just like, this doesn't quite fit. Versus they literally take from the Tchaikovsky Sleeping Beauty Ballet uh, right. and 
put lyrics onto those songs. And I think that's such an interesting choice, uh, particularly for Disney to like adapt so specifically from existing music. But at the same time, when I was younger, I never was aware of that. So when I found out that like that was a previous used score, I'm like, I don't know, it still feels like Disney to me. Yeah, same. I, like, yeah, I just always associated that music with this movie. It's kind of one of these weird things where like, even though I didn't see this movie growing up, I think I knew Once Upon a Dream, like just from some, right. like just Disney, like, you know, I love Once Upon a Dream, by the way, while we're on the music. I, I think that song is so great and really beautiful. That section when they like dance and it's weird with these early Disney movies because I, I don't love a lot of the songs in these early ones, but I really love that one. And I'm curious what if, do you like the kind of early Disney stuff because had they done music or had they done like musical stuff before I'm trying to remember I mean yeah all of them like Cinderella had been musical there like a lot of these had been musicals prior because like Cinderella has like one song doesn't it no it has a couple songs I mean they're not as memorable yeah maybe that's it (laughs) yeah uh but I think yeah a lot of these had had like multiple musical numbers they were still like musicals at the time um but I think the the big thing that separates with this one is, like, there's only one big musical number. A lot of the other songs in this are kind of, like, groups or, like, the Disney chorus, which is something I really loved as a kid. When, like, I associate this movie so much with, like, weird choral Disney singers could only, like, exist in, like, an era pre-digital recording. Like, just that particular style, like a chorus just feels very much indicative of, of, like, these movies to me. And while in a lot of the other movies, it's kind of like the title track, like the Peter Pan, like, second star to the right, stuff like that, over the credits. This movie does that a lot more than, I think, the average one. They have a bit in the opening credits of this, and there's also, like, the Hail to the Princess. It's, like, a big chorus thing. There's no specific character singing that. Uh, The only songs where people, like, sing with each other really are, like, Once Upon a Dream and Scrumps, which is the one, I think, original song, I believe, in the movie. (laughs) Which is great. Great drinking song. I'm going to bring that up to the boys next time we go to the bar. Scrumps, everybody. (laughs) But I think that that helps for this movie because it almost feels like this isn't as, like, specifically musically driven as much as it feels like it's part of, like, a ballet. Like, it feels more like, say, Peter and the Wolf, where it's just, like, there are themes for certain characters, but there's not as much of, like, singing directly. It feels like there's more music in the background and music as like a score rather than music than people singing to each other. Like it feels like that Mm -hmm. is kind of, they do the once upon a dream and that's kind of like almost like the centerpiece of the movie almost. Right. Like it, you know, it's kind of towards the middle of the film, but yeah, I mean, the music is, is so gorgeous. And yet like, I still kind of find a bit of charm in the Disney like chorus vocals. They feel very of their time, but I don't know. I, I, I kind of like them. <laughs> yeah. And I think also with Once Upon a Dream, what kind of works about it as well is that it's like the actual staging of it is not as much like of a traditional like Broadway, like the two lovers like sing with each other the whole time. It's a solo and then it becomes a duet just because like she right. she gets caught basically her doing something in public she would be doing like in her bedroom. Like singing a song about like right. a dream man who I met and I'm dancing with this owl in a cape. Because it's just like, this is my fantasy. And I love that shot where, like, she's turned around and she still thinks the owl's behind her and then the prince comes up. Yeah. And she's just, like, it's surprised as he, like, starts singing with her and stuff like that. I think that's it's a great example where, like, it feels almost like an embarrassing impromptu thing. Like, oh, no, you're not supposed to see this, like, very private moment. I also just love, like, when she's talking to the animals of, like, 
I met this boy and he's this and he's that. And then like, I, I love the kind of like, the disappointed look on the animals is so funny to me when she says, and then I wake up and it just, I don't know. There's something quite like sweet and just innocent and very like gentle about this, this whole sequence really, but her kind of talking to the animals. I, I just still find so charming, even though that's such a Disney thing, right? Like, I mean, Shrek copied so much of like what this movie does still, but like, I, I still think it's so charming and funny. Yeah. I think a, a big part of that also shout out Mary Costa, who was the voice actress, both, you know, speaking and singing for Aurora and Bill Shirley, who were both experienced singers. Mary Costa was an opera singer who came from the South. So she had to like cover up her Southern accent with this mid Atlantic kind of thing she's doing, Oh, okay. which I would never know based on this movie. I mean, yeah. Right. And then yeah. Bill Shirley was like a pop singer who apparently all the girls had crushes on Bill Shirley. <laughs> A man's man, truly. Um, Bill Shirley. But but yeah, I think a big part of that also with like Aurora is that she's the first Disney princess, I would argue, that feels more modern, I would say. Because like with a lot of the right, earlier princesses, like Snow White is very yeah. much like this is a thir- 1937 movie <laughs> sort of protagonist <laughs> character. And even Cinderella, I would argue, because they all feel much more like, oh, we are the most good possible people in this world and these villains are trying to snuff out our good versus Aurora kind of feels a bit more like a modern teenager, especially like the 50s era. We're yeah. kind of getting the rise of the teenager. She feels a bit more like, oh, I have fantasies about my man and I'm kind of going around my bumbling and... and I'm going around my bumbling aunts who aren't mm-hmm. as aware of like, well, I'm just going to go outside, I guess, and pick berries, which is the <laughs> I just picked them yesterday. We'll pick some more. We need way more. <laughs> Kind of bit, but I, 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 she has like a bit more of a modern sensibility that I think works for her and makes her feel a bit more distinctive from the other princesses of this era. I agree. Yeah. And I mean, like, I would say she still falls in line with Snow White and Cinderella in that, like, they're a bit passive, I guess, in the story in some ways. Are you saying the lady who spends the last third of this movie sleeping isn't very active <laughs> in the story? I, yeah, I was going to say, she doesn't get a lot to do, but she is sleeping for a long portion of the movie but like i agree with what you said though and i think like as much as that like that joke that they say of like it is the 14th century is kind of like just a yeah. really funny joke i do think yeah it is kind of like this uh, a really funny yeah uh, interesting idea but also like i i've always just liked the idea in this movie that like there's they meet without knowing that the who the other person is right there's kind of a screwball comedy thing to that as well right. Where he, you know, he's like, I'm supposed to marry the princess, but he's already met the princess. I, I, it's such a great kind of screwball like type of plot. Yes. That like, I, I think even though it is a very fairy tale, Disney kind of like love at first sight, prince and princess kind of love. I think it's still very like, it's very funny and that charming like in the, especially like the conversation he has with his father is so, is so funny to me. Well, it also so feels great. a bit subversive for like Walt Disney at the time. I think that's an also interesting right. aspect of it. And it feels like it's just like the right dashes of it where it's just like kind of a wink, not like an aggressive like nudge in your ribs like some modern Disney movies. You're like, I love Moana, but the bits where they do reference like, if you're going to sing, I'm going to hurl, like stuff like that. Exactly. Where it's right. like all of their sort of basis of like Disney satire is very firmly baked in like the 1990s still. It's like, we're mm-hmm. not your average. That's become the cliche <laughs> now, honestly. Yeah. 
But yeah, like that's the more aggressive version of it, as opposed to here. There's like winking, but it's not like too like much in your face. It feels like Walt knew it was just like kind of like that part of what I was talking about, where he was very firmly like, I want to make this a bit different from the average Disney movie. We're a bit more right. self-aware. We're a bit more lavish and stylish with our designs and stuff like that. But at the same time, yeah, I think it kind of, I don't know, this is, we've talked about the idea of a vibes movie, but I would argue this one kind of fits a bit more in kind of like the, for the Disney, Walt Disney animation era, it feels a bit more like vibesy, like in the same way of like a Fantasia and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, the woodland kind of stuff is very like, it doesn't, I don't know what season it is, but it's giving, it, it, it feels very fall. I mean, just maybe all the, like, the dead trees and everything, and, like, it, it absolutely is. I mean, like, just so much of the ambiance of this movie is so great with all, like, just the castles and, like, the the forest and, and like, and, I mean, we'll get to the, the castle scene later, which is just so my aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about Maleficent Slayer. Her, her little, okay, uh, her enclave, um, to, especially in contrast to the lavish stuff we see of, like, uh, King Stefan's land, which I love the look of all that. Like like you were mentioning, the, the sort of opening setting, like the big hall where everyone's, like, attending to see the newborn princess. It looks so lavish versus fucking Maleficent's place. What, looks... Where does she live? Of the Forbidden Mountain? Is that what it's called? I believe so, yeah. <laughs> cool. I just, and I love just the way they're like when they have to eventually go there to rescue Philip. She's they're like not the Forbidden Mountain. We can't go there. I just I love anytime there's a, a place that's like you know just this horrible place we can't go and it looks so great with just all the spiky like mountains everywhere like oh, so great. And also I, I just want to share I do love her minions. I think they I are. I was gonna say, yeah. Especially the, the whole scene where she's talking about just like, so did you search? Everything? Yeah, we searched all the houses and the cradles, and it's like this whole time they've been looking for a baby. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love when she just like after that when she just goes crazy and starts like throwing spells and like a bunch of them just like fall down the stairs and everything. Like it, they they're they're not too like commit they're not the minions or anything right they're not like no there's no kevin or bob or doug to be seen here (laughs) maybe they should be (laughs) but um but like they do feel kind of like i love the the voice we checked all the cradles and like i i love the voice i love just like the little design of it and how kind of that goes along with kind of just the more gothic and darker side of like these last like what, 15, 20 minutes or so of the movie? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're so cool. I love them. Yeah, which I believe that main one is voiced by a guy named Pinto Clovig, who most okay. might know as uh, he was the original voice of Goofy. Oh, hell yes. Right, which makes sense. I love Goofy. I would say he kind of has like a Goofy sort of uh, <laughs> tone to him. Um, <laughs> you know, when she starts using her magic, I was waiting for the Goofy scream. To happen, an extremely like, goofy tone. Extremely goofy tone. I wish he would. You know, he we're missing rollerblading and skateboarding with those characters. I don't know if Sleeping Beauty two had ever happened like direct to video, that would have probably happened. <laughs> Thankfully, this was one of the ones spared from that punishment. It did get a live action remake, which we'll talk about. Yes, we'll t- we should <laughs> well, talk. Kind about of, it. kind of. It, it got sort yeah. of a, a, a subversive take in live action, which we'll, we'll, we should definitely focus on a little bit later, but. Um, yeah, with Sleeping Beauty, though, I mean, you know, while we're on this stuff with Maleficent, let's just talk about the dragon thing. Oh, my God, the dragon. Uh, well, just to get it out of the way, 
one i love dragons <laughs> i just love i love like fantasy and dark fantasy stuff i love medieval shit right I, I love it i love the aesthetic i love just like you know all of that stuff and so just this whole section of like the escape from maleficent's castle is so striking visually where like it's so dark which like the rest of the movie has been very like lively and green and there's a lot of like life to it and this feels so like dingy and gothic and dark but like i, I love this section because obviously of like just the look of it all but like i like that again we we've been talking about like the three fairy godmothers and like they are kind of the ones like leading philip out of this castle and kind of like they make their way into it and then lead philip out of it and i love just all like their little just the little ways that they like break him out with like the the wands they sound like little like cutters like zzz. or like the bit where like all the rocks are falling down they turn into bubbles or like they guard right. him from like arrows with like a rainbow and stuff like that exactly yeah yeah and like i love that they give him the the shield and the what is it what is it the shield of virtue right and the sword of truth i i love that i just again just fantasy stuff that i love just like this is a sword and your shield and go forward on your quest or whatever and i just love also that this feels very much like maleficent and her minions are like pulling out all the last possible stops just like and she's still she's pretty confident all the way until they like start getting past like the the trees that are filled with like thorns and stuff like that that's where she's like throughout most of that maleficent's just like oh this will all work you're fucked you're dead you're not getting out of this. And then once that starts happening, she's like, ah, oh, big guns. Gotta become the dragon. Well, she doesn't even be, like, before she becomes a dragon, she is just kind of, like, throwing, like, spells at him at first. Oh, that great shot of, like, her on top of her tower and, like, the clouds kind of, like, form around her and she, like, throws it. Yeah, that rules. It's it's so incredible. And, like, yeah, I, I love when they turn the, the, the crow to, like, a stone crow. I, I love that. Like, the way she chases him down. We haven't talked about his horse, who I don't... Does he have a name? I don't know if he has a name. I'm, I'm not sure. There's plenty of these Disney horses that have just... names. I'm not I'm not sure. Sorry, I don't have the Disney fandom wiki. <laughs> I'm sure there's a, a fandom page for this horse. <laughs> but um, I love the animation on the horse. I love how, like, expressive he is. And he doesn't feel like the horse from, like, Tangled, for instance, which I, I like Tangled, to be clear. But, like... Mm-hmm. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, just the, the difference in kind of, like, the goofiness of it. Um, like, I love when, this is go- going back a bit, but, like, when uh, Philip's talking to his to his dad, and he's, his, Philip's like, I met this girl, and he his dad turns to the horse and is like, is this true? <laughs> so good. And the horse has, like, a couple of facial reactions, but, yeah, it feels like kind of the precursor to sort of a tangled in that same way. Which right. Is like, the, the horse, who normally would just have no personality in these early movies, it just kind of has, like, a bit of a cartoonish kind of, like, placement of his eyes and his mouth yeah. um, that get you invested in the horse enough, weirdly, without making him, like, a full sidekick. Uh, yeah. Without making him, like, a Sven in Frozen or some shit. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, necessarily. But, but, yeah, I think with these, like, animal sort of, like, sidekick characters who do show up, they do feel like, once again, they're, they're kind of tempering that same t- tonal balance the movie's going through, where it's just like, we're going to have personality, and we're going to have like maybe jokes that feel a bit more character animation-focused, but not as much like gags, because there's apparently a lot more slapsticky stuff in this movie originally. Like the whole scene where like they make the cake, 
was going to be a lot more like big and elaborate. Like, oh, they're like flying out of the chimney and like the whole oven explodes. And Walt was really just like, this feels like a Donald Duck cartoon. Doesn't quite fit this. And fair. And I think that's that's a big thing with like a lot of these. Like even like the the three um, fairy characters do feel like they're they have like a silliness to them. But at the same time, it, all the silliness stuff comes from like their individual character bits. Which just like you know how you have like uh, Flora is like the the red one who's a bit more like bossy and is the one who initially introduces like we're not gonna use magic. We're gonna make sure none of that happens. Some Maleficent can't catch us. And then Fauna who feels a bit more kind of like flighty. And kind of like, we're just like, oh, I don't know, I'll make something work. Like, I love the bit with, like, the most slapstick the cake bit is now. It's like when she's finished with it, and it's like kind of like a leaning tower of pizza, like almost falling over, like, 16 layers, like, awkwardly stacked on each other. The way and the that, candles, like, individually, like, slide down. Yes. <laughs> the, like, broom. Love that bit. <laughs> um, and Meriwether, who's, like, the shorter one who's just kind of like, oh, I guess I'll, like, do something around here. I don't know, nobody, like, trusts yeah. me to do Why nothing. Why can't we use magic? Right, right, she's... <laughs> She's like that, or she's... I love that, like, her job, after a certain point when they start introducing magic, is just like, all right, I'm going to make the dress, you're going to get the cake done, and you're going to clean. <laughs> That's what you do. You <laughs> get the mop to go. <laughs> I love this section, though, of like them, like, using magic to do all the stuff, because, like, I love in any, like, especially animated movies when, like, they use magic like this, like... One, I love when they talk to the magic, where they're like, I love when she turns, like, the book and is like... Just do it like it says in here. <laughs> um, or we're just like, stop, mop. And then the mop like, falls in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And also, I just love, like, when characters use magic, it's like the broom and, like, everything in the mop become alive. Yes. Right? So, like, the mop is, like, walking <laughs> and everything. I-, I love just, like, that whole section. I love... It-, it-, it is the stuff that feels kind of the most, like comedic the most like slapstick kind of stuff but i love when the magic makes the cake and it like pours and it looks so like good right like, and it, like the, oh, i want to bite that animated cake <laughs> which contrasts <laughs> <laughs> so i'm gonna clip that out of context like i want to bite the animated cake <laughs> <laughs> he could be talking about prince philip at this point i don't know <laughs> then again not a lot of cake no not not quite not true. He's very slender. <laughs> yeah, you gotta wait till I don't know which Disney prince has cake. Uh, <laughs> reply to us in the comments uh, and tell us which which Disney prince has the best cake. Um, but but uh, which contrasts really interesting. Like all that magic stuff you're talking about, it contrasts very well with like Maleficent, who we kind of steered away from a bit. But like whenever right. she uses her magic, it's much more kind of ethereal, and it's less of that kind of like personability that like they have with the sentient objects. Like my favorite shot, honestly, of Maleficent that isn't her as a dragon is the whole bit where like they've uh, the three theories have brought Sleeping Beauty back to the castle, and they put her alone in her room for a bit, and they're gonna like get the king, and then all of a sudden like the fireplace starts to have some sort of like ethereal kind of like green smoke to it, and then Maleficent just like shows up like, silhouetted, almost, except for, like, her eyes piercing through. It's like, that feels like all, something from, like, the Babadook or some shit. That's, like, terrifying. <laughs> I mean, that whole section where she is, like, like hypnotized by, like, Maleficent's, like, calling, I guess, is so, like, striking. Uh, yeah, I mean, that shot of, like, yeah, like you mentioned, the, the hallway is so great. The way, like, the, the just the tiny, like, bit of light comes through and, like... Yeah, where the fireplace especially, like, opens up just suddenly within, like, a lighting change into a hallway. Right. Yeah. 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 And just 
the kind of like frozen look on her face when she's like walking up to the thing and just hearing Maleficent's voice. Her hand outstretched particularly, just like waiting to yeah. prick the needle. It It is kind of like going into a bit of a darker kind of like tone of this movie. Like it feels a bit, yeah, I don't know. Like I would never say this, like a Disney movie has like an edge to it necessarily, but I think it's the closest that like, especially in this era, I feel like they come to without like a lot of the, obviously a lot of like Pleasure Island stuff is like very dark, but that's kind of, a different kind of dark, you know what I mean? This isn't quite as much of, like, a body horror sequence that involves donkeys, necessarily. Right, just kind of more, like, the composition of it, the the rhythm of it, like, everything about it is, is like, is just, like, a horror scene, almost, or, like, a thriller scene, I Particularly, guess. like, the way that the lighting just turns, like, a dark shade of green. I love right. that. It just represents, like, Maleficent is here, and her presence is known. I, I love that. And especially the shot of Sleeping Beauty, like, on the floor. Because, like, obviously this happens a lot. Like, you know, Snow White did the same thing. Which is, like, mm-hmm. Snow White falling over. And that. I mean, like, that's really... I love that bit in Snow White where, like, she eats from the apple and then, like, you just see her arm fall over and, like, the apple roll out. That's pretty upsetting. But then Walt's just like, okay, how am I going to do it different here? All right. These fairies are going to go up the tower and they're going to find her just lying there. Like, not even in, like, a composed state. She's just, like, flopped on the ground like like she's about to get chalk outlined basically she's like jesus christ a murder just happened here and melissa's just like in the corner like yep fucking did it yep and then like disappears and <laughs> yeah. like goes and yeah uh, and but like and this is what's so weird about this movie is that, like at that point in the plot their decision is then to put the entire kingdom yes to sleep <laughs> while they go solve this it like such a weird decision and like I love them putting like everyone to sleep, like the whole kingdom. I love just like it. It's slowly kind of like everyone just like uh, Particularly falling Hubert asleep. when he's just like trying to tell, just like I talk with my foot. <laughs> <laughs> I love that kind of like sleeping mid sentence kind of thing. Um, but but yeah, I, I think that kind of fits with what we were talking about earlier. Where like because these fairies and Maleficent are sort of like the major characters, it feels as if like this is more a world. Where, like, humans are trifles, and magic creatures are really the ones that are, like, making all of this work. Just like, we've been around forever. Right. We're aware of, like, what's going on here far more than you humans. Like, we just gotta, like, put you guys to bed. We gotta treat you like children. Because we gotta get shit done. We're gonna put you to bed. And then we're gonna do adult things over here. It was always, yeah, it was always something that I, like, I found so striking when I first watched this movie. Where I'm like... There's kings, like, he's the king and the queen, like, how are they putting them to sleep? But I love, yeah, just that idea of, like, they're fairy, they're fairy godmothers, okay? They're these, they're on a whole other level of, like, you know, humanity, or, like, you know, just another level to humans, but, yeah, I, I love it. It's so, it's such a weird choice, it's such a, like, interesting choice, and, like, I don't know, feels so, like, again, feels like a very fairy tale thing um, that they just, like, executed really, really well, I think. It's, yeah, it's great. And especially leading up to, like, the only human character who has, like, any kind of agency at this point is the prince, but only because he's, like, being circled around by these fairies. Just, like, we're going to help you out because, like, you could not do this on your own. You would die instantly if you would. Right. Because I, I love one of my favorite, like, Disney villain monologues ever is after Prince Philip is captured and Belafin just comes over just like, oh, darling, you wanted to go find your princess? Don't worry. I'm going to let you out, but I'm going to wait a while. 
you're gonna sit down here, you're gonna stew. But I, the way that she says it, I just love that it's like it's this very like on paper, everything she's saying sounds romantic. She's like, oh, you will eventually get out of here and find your beautiful princess and have true love's first kiss. And the animation of like old ass Prince Philip and the horse. It's so good. It's like, I love it every single time. And, and it feels like a genuinely horrifying, like villain monologue where I'm like, Jesus, this is like evil. Like it's truly maleficent know? as it were. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Because, like, I love that, too, because, like, it's so much worse than, like, oh, I'm going to kill you. It's, like, right. you're going to live here chained up, and then when you're, like, so old that you're going to, like, die if you breathe too hard, I'm going to let you go <laughs> climb up those stairs and find your princess, motherfucker. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. It rolls. And then we have this whole, like, escape sequence. And then, yeah, she turns into a, a giant dragon in like what is maybe one of my favorite sequences in an animated movie it just looks so striking and i i mean we're talking about kind of early you said like this feels like the end of an era for disney animation and like it really feels like they are just pulling out all the stops like everything feels like they are like this this escape sequence is so extravagant even in a different way than the the movie has been up until this point i'm watching it right now and in the background of this and it's still like so stunning well especially with like the way that the the dragon is animated is so fascinating to me because it definitely feels like this is like an a creature but truly a fantastical creature because just like you know in other disney animated movies where they've had dragons like your peach dragons you know stuff like that um you would have like these dragons that have a bit more like personality a bit more like we mentioned a cartoonish just the reluctant dragon very much the case uh, in his little animated bit in that movie. But the Maleficent dragon feels so much more like just this unknowable creature not of Earth. It feels truly just like this is like some creature that crawled from, you know, the powers of hell, as it were. Just like crawled from hell and is now here yeah. to like blow this green fire on you. It is like such a like, and this whole part with like all the thorns and everything, it is like so metal <laughs> like and especially the design of her drag of the dragon is so like metal is so cool and yeah feels like a genuinely like horrifying like creation and yet still fits within that tapestry aesthetic of the whole movie because like right, when you say yeah. metal i think of like a yes album cover that's like painted on like the side of a guy's van who like <laughs> hangs out a lot of the smoke shops right I, I just love, like, the fact that, like, the dragon has the horns like her, right? So it is it is kind of, it is distinctly, like, Maleficent, right? It has, like, her, it's basically her character design just, like, superimposed onto, like, a dragon. It feels like a better version of, I want to preface this by saying I love this movie, but The Little Mermaid has that kind of problem where, like, Ursula has to just be, like, big Ursula, like Kaiju Ursula at the end. <laughs> As supposed to, like, yeah. I don't know, like, make her, like, a full-on, like, evil octopus or, like, uh, like a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea squid or that Kraken, right? You know, like, have her, like, a beak or whatever that still has, like, Ursula tendencies as opposed to, like, uh, her but big. Let's go with that. Like, I mentioned, like, Kaiju Maleficent was at the end of this movie. They just feel like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I love also her death with, like, the sword. I think it's great. Oh, which is, like, he throws the sword. And then that shot of, like, the weird, almost, like, puddle that's left over of her and then the sword turns like black like that's the last room like the sword of truth becomes like this thing you can't touch now 
Right, yeah. It's a conduit for all of her magic that's still left over after she's died. Right, yeah. I, I love just the shot of, like, when he throws the sword and, like, the sword's in her, like, chest and she, like, like writhes in pain like that. It, it just looks so, like, stunning. And again, like, I love when she falls into, like, the cavern and, like, the that, like, purple smoke that I don't know why, but, like, every time I watch it, I'm like, that smoke looks so good. <laughs> Yeah, and a big um, thing was, like, that's obviously, like, referencing part of her wardrobe with, like, the black cloak that has, like, purple lining that we can see. Like, if you look at the early concept drawings that Mark Davis did, she was had a lot more, like, sort of red sort of uh, lining on her stuff. But that feels almost, like, too close to, like, devil. Instead, like, purple adds another kind of bit of regality to her. Right. Yeah, it's like her, her color is purple, black, and green, right? Like, it's this kind of, like... Truly Halloween <laughs> color palette. <laughs> Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think all this really emphasizes, like, I think she's the best of, like, this era of Disney villain. Because, like, Disney villain's a big thing of, like, you know, people, like, talking about, sort of, like, the that cavalcade of people. Because, you know, mostly around this time, you get either, like, your much more classic Disney villain of, like, the queen in Snow White who turns into, like, the old evil hag kind of thing. Or you have, like, say, uh, Captain Hook and Peter Pan. Which, that's, I would argue, is, like, he's a very funny villain. He's one of my favorite, like, the funnier villains of this time. Hans Conried rules in that movie. Yeah. It's one of the few things that, like, holds up about that movie, quite frankly. The sequence with him and, like, the alligator is, like, a is probably the best part of that movie. Like, just that whole, that whole like... Uh, I mean, all his stuff where, like, sequence. he's got, like, the cigar... He's got, like, the cigarette holder that has, like, three cigarettes at the end of it. And just keep the weight, just says, Smee! And so, he's a very, like, funny villain. But Maleficent feels truly, like the one you don't want to fuck with of, like, this early era. Just like, I ain't fucking with Maleficent at all. Yeah, she feels genuinely, like, scary and, like, I mean, huh, malicious, but, like, um... Workshop. Yeah. I think it's a different name. Close. <laughs> this is Walt in, like, 1954 <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> malicious, I don't know. It doesn't sound too good. Yeah, she should be kind of, like, bad. Almost malicious you could say (laughs) (laughs) we've basically kind of gone through the whole moving um so i guess we should maybe start wrapping up here with Stephen beauty uh because we want to talk about some other ancillary things uh like we teased earlier but um yeah any final stuff you want to share about sleeping beauty would you say like we like talking about rankings here or is this in your like disney animation rankings i i think it's at the top if i'm being honest oh tip top just I think. Let me double check. Because I'll say my ratings kind of shifted a bit as of recent with doing some of this research, particularly with Beauty, which I would argue at this point, um, looking at my letterbox list, it's number five. So in that top five, pretty solid. But um, number four is Moana. Number three is Aladdin. Number two is Pinocchio. Number one is Beauty and the Beast. Interesting. My number one is Sleeping Beauty. My number five is Beauty and the Beast. Okay. I'm sorry. And then what's in between? I never, so I got number four, The Little Mermaid. Okay. Number three, The Emperor's New Groove. Hey. I love that movie. I think it's just so, so fucking good. Um, number two, I have The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, the 1977 one. Right, which is the collection of the various, like the three shorts that had been made. Up to that time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And number one is Sleeping Beauty. It is my favorite of, of the Disney movies so far. Like, And yeah, this will always like 
change. I think as I get older, I'll, I'm sure I'll like gravitate to some more than others and whatever. But like, I'm sorry. I just remembered one more, th- what, one more thing. One more thing. I love at the end when they like wake everyone up and then, uh, uh, what's Philip's dad's name? Uh, uh Hubert. King Hubert. He, after he, when he's like, well, uh, you know, this is the 14th century. Like he says it to the, to, to Stefan, which I think is just, just so funny. I love, yeah, his bumbling at the end where he's just looking around like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so great. I, I love that. But, um, no, yeah, this is my favorite Disney animated movie, maybe. Uh, I think it's the one that, like, it, it's not my favorite in that, like, I grew up with, like, the Renaissance one, so I, I do have, like, a bit of nostalgia towards those. Right. Um, especially Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. My, my nostalgia and my, like, love for, like, Aladdin and the Lion King has kind of waned over the years. Mm-hmm. But, but looking at, like, the early animation, I, I just, I think this is one of the most gorgeous animated movies of all time. I mean, we, we talked a lot about, like, just how gorgeous this looks and how, like, ornate it looks, how stunning it is. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I've seen this a few times at this point, and every time I watch it, I just can't help but, like, get mesmerized by, like, the backgrounds and, like, those those trees like i swear like next time you want anyone watches this movie just watch the just look at the trees because they're just so <laughs> great the other flora um, and fauna <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah it, it has a lot of the qualities from like these early movies where you're like they feel outdated of course of like they fall in love after you know just meeting or whatever and you know these there are no characters really like philip and aurora aren't really characters necessarily they are more like I don't know, but it it feels like a fairy tale really brought to life. Um, and, and, like, it feels like they really have the sensibilities of, like, a fairy tale in a way that, like, Disney has done fairy tales, and they, for, like, so many of their movies are fairy tales, but, like, they do always do that kind of jokey thing, like we talked about, where it, like, it goes a little too much into that jokey direction for me. But this is a movie that kind of balances that, like, regal quality and that disney kind of thing right disney wants to be like family friendly and also just they have a certain obviously disney has a certain kind of what am i trying to say here a certain vibe a vibe yeah a certain method that they tell their stories with and i think it walks that line so perfectly for me i really have grown to love this movie more as i've gotten older just surprises me still every time I watch it. And I, I I can say that for some of the early animated movies, but very little of them. So yeah, I I love it. I think it's just so stunning and um, yeah, it's my favorite. Yeah. Just to shout out at least a couple things that we didn't really specifically mention. Um, I love those little, uh, the gift of blank montages that happen during that opening bit. Mm -hmm. So I give you the gift of song or the gift of beauty uh, which very abstract gifts to give. Uh, they spent a lot of money on those. At least Meriwether had the specific one that was very helpful. That made sure she wouldn't die. I suppose like you're gonna look pretty and you're gonna sing, <laughs> basically. Uh, but I love those montages where like the various different like images are kind of like fading in and out, cross fading in a way that once again could only happen with like this particular like optical era, where just like right. that had to take like so much time just to be able to, like do the like swirling clouds or like. The almost like uh, painting uh, sort of like looks at Aurora and stuff like that. They're very differently stylistically 
compared to what else happened. Um, I gotta say, uh, shout out to a lady named Alice Davis, uh, who is was an actual um, fashion designer and got her first job here designing clothes for the various different Disney characters. Her design on Princess Aurora's dress, I would argue, the best dress of any of the Disney princesses. Wow, that is a a bold claim. Because <sighs> like, there's I... some more traditional with like Cinderella. Like, I don't know. We're not. I'm not a fashion critic. I don't know. Like Brian can see this that I don't have the most <laughs> <laughs> elaborate fashion designs necessarily. But with like the Disney princess sort of like dress or outfit, it tends to be like just their kind of standard outfit. Like Snow White is that. Like her dress, which kind of feels like this is like a casual garb instead of like an actual gown. <laughs> kind of thing she wears the whole movie. Or Cinderella has a bit more of that yeah. with, like, her, like, fairy godmother dress. Kind of feels like the more traditional dress. I love with the one in Sleeping Beauty, like, that big collar and, like, the, yeah. the weird kind of, like, line designs, like, on, like, her chest area. Like, it, it feels much more, like, what we were talking about, like, this regality to it. And also, it fits neither pink or blue, which it shifts yeah, color often. I was going to say, we have to, well, which do you prefer? Do you prefer the pink or the blue? This is the... <laughs> Pressing question here. We're visiting a very old dead meme. With the dress thing. Do you remember that? Yeah, is it is it blue and black or is it is it gold and whatever? Right, that bullshit. Which do you prefer? Um I mean I think the standard has been the pink. Like whenever I see merchandise of Aurora, it tends to be that pink one. Um but uh I mean it's like I said, I think it's versatile. It works in either way. I don't think you can say the same thing about like if you made Cinderella's dress pink, it would look quite as fair. Good. It would look a bit more garish. As I like agree. The design's universal. Yeah, I'm a fan of the blue personally. I agree. I agree with uh, with Meriwether. <laughs> I do love that. Like that's another thing where that's a simple gag, but in practice, like whoever's like coloring that particular cell has to switch oh between God. pink and blue. <laughs> Pink God, what a nightmare. Especially when you see, by the way, I love, like, I, I watch, like, Disney Plus has one of the, like, featurettes, and you see, like, the whole, like, the fact that with cells, they had to, like, paint on the back of them. So, like, you see, like, the, okay. the back side that has, like, kind of the mushy, like, oh, here's the various different colors. And then when you turn it over, it's got the lines on it. And it looks, like, perfect. Okay. Um, right. I love that aspect of, like, old cell animation. Um, but, but yeah, I, I and just, you know what? Here's an interesting other little tidbit. That relates more to like the modern era that I learned from the Disney War book, which I'm currently in the process of listening to the audiobook for. Um, in 1986, they started introducing um, some of these Disney movies onto home video, like VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc, etc. And that was a big strife point with like uh, Michael Eisner and some of the other uh, people involved, where it's like it was like one of the other like younger executives suggested like hey let's do this on video it's like are you kidding we make so much money when we release these in theaters which is would always do it's like it's literally like a seven-year period where there, there right. would be like sleeping beauty would like be in theatrical release in 59 come back in i don't know that would be what 1960 66 yeah right so it kind of like have that kind of cycle to it as opposed to like interesting on vhs they were like okay um well if we're gonna do this let's one put out movies that weren't very successful at the box office usually, which in this case, Sleeping Beauty and Pinocchio were the first two were put on VHS. Right. And two, we're going to put these out for like 200 bucks so that the only people that will actually <laughs> be course. able to buy these will be rental stores. And then we can get money off the rentals 
Um, even though 100 million video cassettes were sold when they first put both of them out. So that's kind of like the early origin point of like the sort of Disney, uh, like on home media collection. Eventually we'd get those clamshell VHSs and then diamond edition DVDs. Like that was so weird. I remember that when I was a kid where it's like, wait, there was a diamond edition. Now it's like a a silver edition. Platinum edition. Yes. Right. There's all these Mm -hmm. weird things. what is it do they does it still have an edition where's my i don't know if my blu-ray has like a that's right brian got it the blu-ray from the library and so he watched this oh no this one i bought oh you bought it i bought it i bought it with my own money but i don't i want to hold on i actually want to see if it has any like thing on it finding this out in real time everybody what what edition does brian have of sleeping beauty what this is the most dvd dork thing possible it is the anniversary edition oh wow very clever. Uh, Great title. <laughs> it just says the signature collection. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not like the platinum or anything. So, guys, you couldn't go for some other element on the periodic table, just like the magnesium <laughs> edition or whatever. The iron. The, the hydrogen edition. Hydrogen. <laughs> oh, but but yeah, I'll briefly just do my final thoughts here. I agree with a lot of what you said. I think this is definitely one of the better ones, especially it's one that has, as I mentioned, gotten much more fond for me with age because there's a lot of those like i mentioned earlier like growing up with like say a peter pan watched all the time go back to it now not nearly as great as i thought it was as a small child uh yeah. versus for various reasons uh versus sleeping beauty is only one of those that like i agree with you that it feels very much like it was made of the specific time just given you know the cell animation and that particular sort of style of it and everything feels very old but at the same time it also feels very timeless in its own weird way. Oh, yeah. Where I think because it's like just subversive enough to be like, this is the 14th century and stuff like that, it feels like just subversive enough to be like, okay, this movie knows what it is, but at the same time, it's not going to like constantly jab you about like, this is a, this ain't your daddy's fairy tale story. It's just right. like, I don't know, like we're, we're being playful with some of the tropes. And I think that's helped by like, obviously who our main driving characters are and who, you know, we kind of, like, focus on versus who we don't. I think it does such a great job of truly, like, making a Disney fairy tale story feel kind of, like, lively and odd. And it just feels so distinct, not just for Disney animation, but just animation in general. There's few other animated films that look and feel like this one, necessarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why, you know, I, I would recommend, like, if you kind of had a similar standoffish attitude to Sleeping Beauty when you were a kid... Uh, it, it ages like a fine wine. It does. Yeah. We didn't mention this, but I just thought about this as well. Of like, another reason I just never watched these movies is because like, you know, gender norms. And it was like, oh, well, this is, these are the princess right. movies. Those are for girls and stuff like that. And so like, I feel like a lot of people haven't seen this movie maybe because it is kind of one of those like either older movies or it's like a princess movie. So like, whatever. Yeah, and I'll tell you, that was very much the case for me as not only just a boy in the 90s, but also a boy in the 90s with sisters very close in age to me uh, right. who were a bit younger, who were just like, we want to watch The Little Mermaid, we want to watch Beauty and the Beast. And I'm like, Aladdin, because this is for boys. And I put my backwards cap on, and then I went on my little skateboard and immediately fell off it uh, but <laughs> within like seconds. And then you were like, tubular. I don't know. It was the 90s, right? So. <laughs> um but but yeah so let's address the element of like obviously this is a classic disney movie and like many a classic disney movie 
It's had live action, not necessarily remake, which I think is like what's fascinating with Maleficent, which came out in 2014, starring Angelina Jolie, and also the sequel, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, um, which I rewatched Maleficent, and I watched Mistress of Evil for the first time as well, kind of in prep for this. Um, I will say, when Maleficent came out initially, almost a decade ago, I really hated it. As someone who, around this time, is when I really started getting into Sleeping Beauty. I was like, oh, this is one of the unheralded masterpieces. And I was just like, well, the fairies, they've made into assholes. And they do this and this that's different. And I hate it and I don't like it. Um, Revisiting it now, after the onslaught of Disney remakes that try and recreate the original as much as possible. Except for whenever they want to include very thin ideas of progressivism. It's just like, see, we're different. We're not like those yes. old fairy tales. We have a couple people of color. Do they do much? Nope. Are they characters? Nope. nope. <laughs> they are actors who we hired to stand there, basically, uh, for the most part. Uh, and with Maleficent, as much as I don't think that movie still works at all, I think it has like some very wonky casting decisions with, say... You know, Charlotte Copeland, this was peak, like, we gotta Same. put him in something. And it's not, you know, a great substitute for the Stefan in Sleeping Beauty. It doesn't quite fit. Um, but at the same time, it's different angle, focusing on Maleficent, kind of telling, like, oh, this is a, the, the story from her point of view. And having, like, you know, that Jolie performance and some other things at least makes it, like, you know, the bar is so low for these modern Disney remakes, I'm like, well, fuck, you guys are trying something. It's not sure. 100% effective, but you are you have a take. That's not just, let's do the original again. Right, it does feel so weird, because, like, up until this point, they had only really made Alice in Wonderland? And, like... Alice in Wonderland, and... Well, I guess if you want to count the, the, the Glenn Close 101 Dalmatians, which I've never That's seen. That's true. But, um... Uh, that was a childhood staple of mine, and it's... And it's definitely just, like, it's a 90s kids movie with a great Glenn Close performance in it, basically. Okay, of course, yeah. Yeah. But that's, like, all they had done up until this point, right? When they made Maleficent? Yeah, this is right before Cinderella, the Kenneth Branagh Cinderella. Yeah, it's the year before Cinderella. So, yeah, like, it does feel weird looking. I, I did not rewatch this, by the way. Um, I forgot <laughs> that there were two Maleficent movies. And right. I saw both of them in theaters. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I, but it's weird to think about now these movies existing and it's like at least it is a different take on like the story i remember the visual effects being pretty decent i don't know have they held up at all um i mean i i would say whenever it's focused on say like maleficent and her sort of darker appearance when she becomes more villainous i think it works a lot better than like the opening bits where it's like it's young maleficent flying around in like a fairy tale land that shit looks rough. Yeah, I remember that looking rough at the time. Yeah, especially they focus so much on this little girl who they have in like a harness, like flying around because Maleficent has wings in this version. And it's just yeah. like, oh, this is not. Dude, you're like jerking this kid around on like a blue screen. <laughs> it feels really weird. God, I don't, I don't remember anything about the first Maleficent movie. I, I will give them credit for there's the, the whole bit that I remember was at least like there was a lot of talk around sort of the subtext of it. The whole opening, I guess, like, this is in the opening, like, I don't know, like, 10, 15 minutes of the movie, where um, Charlotte Copley, her love, uh, oh, great nice. chemistry, Jolie and Charlotte <laughs> Copley, her childhood love, like, reunite with each other, and uh, 
she, you know, sleeps next to him for the night, and then she wakes up, he's gone, and so are her wings, which have been clipped. And she starts screaming in panic and horror, which, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, implications to that, about, like, sexual assault and rape, kind of metaphor stuff there. And that is very bold, I would say, for especially, like, one of these modern Disney live-action remakes, where she's like, you're, that's, like, something none of these other movies would even dare to attempt. Yeah, fair, yeah. And you believe at least a lot of that anguish from Julie. Like I said, I think as we keep going, because like my whole thing with Maleficent at this point now is I think that first like 20 to 30 minutes is like, this is like a lot more interesting, at least than I remember. It's not all great, but it's at least mm-hmm. kind of fascinating. And then the more we keep going and we introduce like that her raven turns into a sexy Sam Riley. Sam Claflin. <laughs> or Sam Riley, yeah. Right, turns into sexy Sam Riley and then turns into the dragon at the end, which is still dumb. Just like, why can't she? I forgot that happened. Yeah, he's the one who turns into the dragon at the very end. It's really dumb. I don't oh. like it. Um, or yeah. even just like the, I don't, I still don't like the bumbling fairies, even though three great actresses, uh, Melda Staunton, Leslie Manville, and Gino Temple play. God, oh my God. Yeah. That is, that's pretty good. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, also Elle Fanning, you know, as Aurora, she's, she's there. Um, yeah. And it does kind of do, I remember at the time I was very pissed off of like, oh, they're just doing the Frozen thing. With, like, the twist that, like, not the kiss from the prince that wakes up Aurora, but from Maleficent. Yes. Right. But, yeah. Which is, like, I think, it feels like, I don't know, maybe, like, shared thinking at the same time kind of thing. But also, it is interesting how it is a movie about Angelina Jolie uh, kind of finding, like, a true love in the form of, like, an adopted daughter. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. That's another way to do it. Yeah, I, my like I remember I loved I was on the Elle Fanning train at this point I think when I watched this movie so like I was excited I was like oh my god Elle Fanning she is in it and everything I think I remember her being good I remember just like the movie being like mostly held up by Angelina Jolie's performance yeah which I remember being pretty like good at the time but I feel like it is what's doing most of the heavy lifting in that yes, movie a hundred percent fair with that um yeah. And then leading into Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, which is such a movie that doesn't exist at all. I, look, I saw it in theaters, in Dolby, and no. it doesn't exist. No, it does not exist whatsoever. And Because it came out like 2019 versus 2014, so like five years, pretty big gap. And it yeah. came out like right before the pandemic, it was like October 2019. So it's one of those yeah. like truly memory hold movies of like that particular time. Um, but... <laughs> I did watch it, and it is, I think, kind of interesting in terms of... Uh, one, it's the only one that's on Disney+. Plus. The original Maleficent isn't huh. on Disney+, Plus currently, which I found weird. That's weird. That is yeah. weird. Very odd. Um, but but also, like, I think it's a worse movie than Maleficent, because like we're mentioning, it's not nearly as... <laughs> shockingly, I know. But it does have at least an interesting turn I was not expecting. Because if you don't know, basically, in this Maleficent sequel... It's weirdly starts off like it's Meet the Parents, where it's like <laughs> Prince Philip, who's a completely different actor now. It's not Brendan Thwaites anymore. It's yeah, the other it's, guy um, from... Uh... It's um, Harris Dickinson. Right. Which, I mean, is he's great. I love him. Right. Uh, if... uh, the lead of uh, the uh, Triangle of Sadness. Triangle of Sadness. Right. Uh, the King's Man. He's going to be in the Iron Claw. He's like a big, big star now, I hope. Um, right, but um, they end up, like, finally getting together, even though I love in the original Maleficent, like, my favorite thing is that 
the prince is truly treated as a prop because like he tries to come up to Maleficent just saying like hey I want to help out and get Aurora and she puts him to sleep conks him out and he's like floating yeah. and then he's only woken up to like hey kiss the princess oh it didn't work and then they throw him out of the movie <laughs> which I think is great <laughs> yeah and then they're together though in the sequel and it's like we're gonna be married he proposes and then Maleficent has to meet with the king and queen um this version of hubert and his wife played by michelle pfeiffer yes and while uh she's there's this awkward dinner and the king falls ill and michelle pfeiffer tries to say like oh it's maleficent cursed him that's what happened here um even though it's actually a big twist on uh, michelle pfeiffer's actually the one causing all these spells with her buddy warwick davis who plays like uh, I believe they say he's a fairy and he's like a weird like turncoat from the magic world who like wants to be part of the human world because Michelle Pfeiffer's big plan is we're going to have the wedding happen. We're going to invite all the fairy tale creatures and bring them in first. And then when we're going to close the doors and we're going to literally gas them to death with like out of the organ, this like fairy magic that's going to kill them. So it's yeah. just like trying to genocide fairy tale creatures that's very interesting i didn't expect yes. that <laughs> i remember watching this in theaters and it, this was a time when i was just kind of like I, I i think i worked at the movies so i like was just watching anything that right. came out i was like i'll watch it it's free and it is such a weird movie it, it's not good right, right. like I don't, you you don't like this movie and i also from my memory don't like it but it is at least making a lot of like very weird and interesting choices especially like i remember the final like battle like climax being very like visually kind of striking if, if, from my memory it's been a while and it's been a, a pandemic away but is it still good or that sequence at least i i don't know it felt very much like a big disney climax of you know this modern era i would say which is like the action is a lot sure. more choppy it doesn't like really cohere that well i think the editing's really terrible in that whole sequence um, but to be fair, like, my least favorite thing about it is more, like, because the, the detail I didn't mention is while all this is going on, Maleficent has fucked off elsewhere, and now she has her wings back after the end of the first movie. So she then finds her kind, which is, like, she thought she was the only oh, one possible. She's like, Tigger. She's like, the wonderful thing about Maleficent yes. is I'm the only one. But it turns out <laughs> there's a whole, like, underground race of, like, these, you know, um, flying, winged, humanoid creatures it's like the Dark Fair, I think is what they're called. Like F-A-E. Isn't Chuatelegia 4 one of yep. them? Chuatelegia 4 is like the lead who's just like, you have been prophesized, Maleficent. You are our true savior. And it's like, oh, Chuetel. That's the part I remember just being like, I'm out. I'm checked out of this movie. I don't Bye. want lore like that. Like, if you're going to do weird lore, I prefer like the whole setup of like, oh, the king and her you know this initial like puppy love thing that turned into something awful as opposed to like many eons ago you were the chosen i'm like who cares yeah yeah <laughs> i i had forgotten about that and i really disliked that part of the movie but i i liked other aspects i think a lot of like the costume design is pretty good in that movie from what i remember also a big shout out uh it's one of the last rick baker makeup designs is maleficent oh, really yes huh uh, like uh, Angelina Lee's sort of look that has like the those cheekbones that could stab you in the face kind <laughs> yes. of thing. Um, but yeah, and that carries over into Mr. Siegel. But at the same time, all those problems with like those two movies, 
I would still say they're upper echelon of those, like, remakes. Not a high bar at all. Oh, 1,000%. Yeah. But it still is, like, I would say in the top five of those, because it's not Pinocchio or Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast. There's no scuttlebutt bullshit in this movie. <laughs> Christ. Um, but it also isn't, like, Peach Dragon, which is Much a better. great movie. Yeah. yeah. Definitely one of the... And also, I would say Kenneth Branagh's Cinderella, which also is not on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> And I think is yeah. one of the, it's just like, they just do a better version of like, you know, Cinderella for that time. Yeah, I've never seen it, despite the idea of Kate Blanchett play, playing the evil stepmother being like the most appealing thing Hell in the yeah. world to she me. Rules in it. Yeah, and Lily James, just one of my favorite actresses yeah. currently working, honestly, right now. But yeah, I think it's a better sort of like twist on like, oh, it's the villain kind of like from her perspective story than like Cruella. Which is another one, just like truly memory hold. I remember like the dog thing at the beginning that became a meme where the dogs like basically chase after yes, her mother yes. and like fall, make her fall over a cliff. <laughs> yeah, I don't. That movie is kind of frustrating because I actually like, I really love Emma Stone, obviously, and I think she's like giving it her all, but like, I don't know. I'm just so like uninterested in like what that movie is, really. That like, yeah, n- none of that movie interests me at all. But no, yeah. Though, by the way, I did want to say we did forget about one of the other weird Disney live action things that technically counts, even though it's it's okay. a very like backwards example. Um, in between Maleficent and Alice in Wonderland, there was Nicolas Cage and the Sorcerer's Apprentice, <laughs> which I've never seen. Which is technically a live action remake. They do. There's literally a whole bit where like Jay Baruchel is our Mickey stand-in. And he makes the mops Wait. come to life. Wait, that's what that movie is? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nicolas Cage is supposed to be, like, what's his name? Yen Sid. That, the, like, the... Oh, like, the his, sorcerer like, master, with the hat right? And everything, like, yeah. Weird. Weird, yeah. Alfred Molina's the villain. Um, it's, it's very bad. Uh, it's the movie that killed National Treasure 3 from happening, because I was, like, Jerry Bruckheimer, Nick Cage, when they're like, we're gonna do this first, and that bombs so hard. <laughs> Weird. Teresa Palmer, Monica yep. Bellucci, Toby Kebbell. Yep. It's on Disney Plus. Maybe I'll watch this. <laughs> <laughs> you do that. Have fun with that. Um, but yeah, so you know what? Let's get into, like, we're done with all this talk of, like, Disney live action stuff. We're, we're done talking about it. Let's talk about some, some good Disney movies that we're going to recommend in our segment, Between the Lines. Every episode, uh, Brian and I uh, recommend another film that sort of fits with uh, the letter criteria of the episode or is tangentially related to the movie that we're covering. Um, And Brian, you're going to go ahead and start here. What is your pick? So my pick um, is another movie kind of from this early Walt period and a movie I didn't really watch a lot growing up. I never watched it. I watched it for the first time when I was in like high school, maybe. And... um, it's one I've just kept thinking about, and I rewatched it 
yesterday for this podcast, and um, it is Fantasia because I, I just was blown away rewatching this again. I had watched it like years ago in high school for the first time, and it was like a weird thing. I, I didn't really know what it was. I didn't really know much about it, but um, I, I didn't get it at the time. I was I just was very perplexed by it. I didn't really know what it was. And then rewatching it this time, I, I've, it's stuck in my head. Um, I was really just blown away by, by Fantasia. I just, it, it feels truly like Disney trying to elevate animation into like, as, as a, an art form and really just Fantasia as a whole feels like just real genuine art I mean, just the mixture of classical music and the animation is so great. I still, to this day, when I envision Mickey Mouse in my head, I envision him with the, like, wizard's hat, like, always, and the robe. That was just always how I, like, envisioned him as a kid. And, like, that sequence is so iconic and so incredible. But, like, the, like, the Greek mythology segment, which is so, like, weird and interesting and gorgeous, and, like, the the Rite of Spring section, which I love, I, I just really was blown away by this again even though i had already seen it it's so incredible and, and really feels unique in like in that there's just there's nothing like fantasia really i don't think like even still i mean they excuse did. me fantasia 2000 sir <laughs> what if there was a fantasia just... in 2000 i and this is a no by the way we could I, we sh could we do a series of movies of like just 2000 right because there's a bunch of movies of like that doesn't quite fit with, like, our classic structure. I mean, that, oh, that's true. Fuck. Or our indie structure, really. Or our oh, modern yeah. structure. Well, it kind of fits modern. Uh, but I don't know. It could. Yeah, we'll, but we'll cover, don't worry. I know you want to cover Blues Brothers 2000 so badly. <laughs> we definitely will. But. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, but Fantasia feels so unique. And, like, I, I really like Fantasia 2000, um, which I should watch again. I, I really only, only remember the... Um, the Rhapsody in Blue section from that yeah, movie. That's the masterpiece. Which is, it is, absolutely. Um, but even like this movie, which is very long, like I was really struck by how long Fantasia was. I forgot it was like a, a just over two hours long. And like, but, but like every section feels so powerful and so unique and so powerful almost. Like I, I just, I don't know. It, it feels like a real piece of art is how I keep thinking about it. And um, interesting to think about Disney making this. Um, yeah, I, I loved it. I think with Fantasia, I remember when I was a kid, that was kind of like my introduction to just classical music in general. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I remember it kind of like gave me that vague impulse of like, oh, I can imagine like a story set to like this music without any like dialogue into it. So right. I can let like my kind of mind wander with the music when I like ever listen to classical music, and I will say I like all of the segments in Fantasia. Um, I think there are some I prefer. I would say like I would sure. um, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Rites of Spring with the Dinosaurs, which rules. That's Hell yes. Um, and then of course, Nyan Bold Mountain is like one of the best pieces <laughs> yes. of animation. Like that fucking Chernabog. With like the way that he is just animated, it's like one of the best examples, especially of like a you know that sort of subversive angle of Disney, where it's like, oh my God, there are demons, and some of them are naked and they have boobs. 
was wild to me seeing it when I was younger. Um, and also just an interesting one in that um, some of the uncomfortable stuff has been scrubbed out of existence with say, like the Greek uh, mythology segment with like the, the centaurs. Right. Um, right. Yes. Originally, there were a couple centaurs who feel uh, a bit uncomfortable. Uh, very like stereotypical of, uh, say, black audiences at the time. Yeah. I mean, look. And it's been <laughs> yeah. erased from history, though. Disney has very much tried to scrub that out. It's not in like, any of the home video releases. It's gone, pretty much. That character is like, totally scrubbed out. It feels like Disney kind of like, let's sweep this under the rug. We never did that. Not there. Yeah. We're not confronting it at all. Fantasia doesn't have like the, the disclaimer, I think. Because I, I also watched no. Alice in Wonderland. I think that's the one that has the disclaimer. Even though in Alice in Wonderland, it's mostly like the smoking, right? I think it is. I don't think there's anything like, yeah. There's not like Siamese just... cats from Lady in the Tramp type shit. God. In that one, I don't think. No. Oh, um, man. But, but regardless, I still think Fantasia overall, yeah. It, it is one of the, the tops, I would say, of that early Walt era of Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that iconography you're talking about with Mickey Mouse, I remember very distinctly. Uh, speaking to the theme parks angle of it, guess what, guys? It's a Disney series. I'm going to bring up theme parks again. Yeah. Um, but at particularly um, originally... Uh, MGM Studios, now Hollywood Studios, uh, had two distinctive things. One, for a while, the sort of icon of it was a giant Mickey Mouse, like, uh, ears thing, like him with the the uh, the big sorcerer hat. It was, like, mm-hmm. two ears and a sorcerer hat, like, right in the middle of the park. And then, like, a hand that had, like, a wand. And then, as part of the great movie ride, the one sort of Disney thing you see on that ride is a bit of, like, Mickey Mouse in in the middle of, like, you know, the Sorcerer's Apprentice magic stuff, which is on, like, a big screen cool. uh, in between animatronics of famous celebrities, which we might talk about that in some other form, put a pin in that. Um, but, yeah, uh, Fantasia, though, great movie. Uh, but Absolutely. I have one here that, uh, similarly, it's an anthology film from the 40s, about 10 years before Sleeping Beauty came out. Uh, this is one of the package films I was mentioning earlier, sort of these uh, anthology-segmented, like, different shorts basically put together. Uh, this one is just a doubleheader, only two segments, um, both adapted from classic works of literature. I have The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, uh, which was the last package film that basically is it's just these two shorts that are adaptations of The Wind in the Willows, initially, um, and then uh, the second segment, an adaptation of Sleepy Hollow, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. And uh, they're both um, narrated by famous people where uh, Basil Rathbone of Sherlock Holmes fame does narration for The Wind in the Willows. Um, Though there's a lot of classic Disney voice actors in that. Uh, And then Legend of Sleepy Hollow, all of the characters pretty much are voiced by Bing Crosby, who narrates and then sort of supplies the interior dialogue for a lot of these characters, like Ichabod and everybody. Um, And I remember this is one I watched a lot as a kid, and... I will say, I think of the two segments, One of the Willows is the weaker one, but I still think it's fun. This is obviously where, like, Mr. Toad is this character who... I've, I've read the original story of Wind in the Willows, but this is my introduction. In this animated version, uh, Mr. Toad is a fucking maniac. Because he's obsessed with, like, initially his horse and cart. And he's plays with his very British horse. And then they spot a motorcar driving around. <laughs> he becomes, like, addicted. Like, I have to buy that car. I have to do it. Um, and I love the only animation on Mr. Toad and the various, like, uh, Badger and Mole, the two sort of, like, buddies of his that go chasing after him. 
Um, and then the weasels, sort of like this is the early example of like the weasels we would later get in Roger Rabbit, we've covered on the show. Oh, of um, it's like the henchmen. My best friends. Yes, and your best friends. <laughs> they understand me. <laughs> um, and that, it's all, it's a fun segment, but pound for pound, I think The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is one of my favorite just pieces of Disney animation of all time. It's got that kind of cartoony aesthetic to it. Um, it has a bit more of like, a very unlikable protagonist in Ichabod who was just very outwardly like, I like having sex with ladies and I like eating their food. And I, I'm a gold digger who really wants nice. to be with Katrina, the local rich girl. Um, so I can like, there's a whole like bit where he's talking about like, Oh, Katrina, I can't wait to have, uh, you know, like be with you in these fields of wheat that look like gold money that I can have once your dad dies. And so he is truly like despicable as a character, um, but he's like so funny. And all the, the the songs of like very Bing Crosby sort of like era of that music. I, I have a soft spot for that particular kind of music of that era. One of my favorite Disney songs is the Headless Horseman main theme, which is done as like Brom Bones, who's like sort of the guy who's trying to get Katrina as well. That's local to town. Um, just tells this the legend of Sleepy Hollow and just the whole like breakdown of it. And then the climax where Ichabod is chased by the Headless Horseman. I think all that stuff is some of the best character animation in Disney. It's some of the best like horror stuff in Disney. I would argue this was a very early example of me getting into horror as a kid. Where it's just like, this is spooky. This is unnerving. Mm -hmm. But like in a way that it feels like so ethereal at the time. To the degree that I always watch at least the Sleepy Hollow bit every Halloween. I think it's just genuinely like some of the best kind of like autumn, spooky, unnerving kind of feel. Um, also some great like early comedy stuff that kind of like eases you in before the horror really takes over. I just I, I think this is easily the best of the package films. Most of those you can skip. There are like individual segments that are kind of fun, but they're mostly whiffs, quite frankly. And especially with like the um, Salus Amigos uh, kind of racist as well. Shockingly, oh, sure, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Yeah, as opposed to um, uh, Ichabod Mr. Toad, I think, is, like, the one of those I would recommend to anybody, and particularly for the Sleepy Hollow segment alone. I think it's, like, just one of my favorite things Disney has made in general. And the Mr. Toad one's fun. I, I skipped the, the package movies when I did my whole Disney run-through, mainly because, yeah, I kind of assumed that they were all just kind of, like, not very memorable or worth watching. Um, but I might check this one out. I will check this one out, actually, because I... It does seem like the only one that I would really have any interest in, I think. Plus, there's only two stories, and the movies, like like a lot of these old Disney movies, it's 68 minutes long. It's yeah, barely over an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there. Uh, yes, I had ni- the 1940 movie Fantasia from Disney. And I had the 1949 film The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, also from Disney. We're going to start wrapping up here, uh, so uh, while we do that, we want to thank some people, like uh, Burial Grid for our intro music, purchase his music at burialgrid.com, including his new album, uh, which just came out, um, like literally when we posted our last episode of the previous season, uh, Waves of the Quietus, great name, cool, wonderful yeah. album artwork as well, I'd recommend uh, you all purchase, uh, and also thanks to Michelle Kyle uh, for her artwork, find her at mishkyle 96 on Twitter, thank you, Michelle, for letting giving me a great uh, background from which I can add dumb photoshops to, for like very <laughs> bad, like just place a character in front of the seats of the show. Uh, and of course, also thanks uh, to our Patreon 
subscribers at patreon.com slash cinema number two letter where for just one dollar a month you get access to uh bonus episodes that we put out over there bonus audio tracks and also uh, you get to vote in polls for stuff like one of the later episodes of the season was chosen by our patrons um and over on the patreon you have some of the bonus audio you might be able to hear um we would have already released our audio i review i believe for the killer um which we haven't seen yet we're very excited for the david fincher movie and also uh we're gonna definitely do some kind of like a big review roundup thing near the end of the month because a lot of new oscar stuff's coming out and brian and i are trying to watch as many of that stuff i'll just say i think one will definitely mutually cover we haven't talked about this but uh, we've both seen priscilla oh my god I think we'll definitely at least. so fucking good. We'll, we'll, I'll save it for the Patreon. <laughs> I mean, oh, I don't know. I don't I'll know. I'm not sure of my thoughts yet. No, you know, fine. it's not like these are on Letterboxd or anything. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll probably have like a big sort of like round of stuff that's released in November that we'll talk about. And also, um, we'll be talking about a more subversive version of a fairy tale with uh, Into the Woods, the Stephen Sondheim musical, specifically the 1991 stage recording. We'll be talking about in detail, though. We'll also probably bring up the movie Disney produced, yeah. uh, yep. which, you know, as like sort of a comparison point, but we'll be talking about that's our big bonus podcast for the month. And, uh, you know, look forward to stuff as we get into December, for more Disney related material we'll announce in the future. And uh, all that for just one dollar. You get access to all that stuff over there it really helps out. Keeps the show afloat, as it were. Keeps us uh, in a, an awoken state, as it were. <laughs> Not sleeping. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at cinema number two letter, any of those socials, blue sky also as well. We're over there, uh, cinema number two letter once again, and you can find me on most socials as at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing on marianithomas.wordpress.com and film-cred.com. You can find me on Twitter at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E followed by the number three. Or you can follow me on Letterboxd at my name, see my my published list for 2023, which is up. I, I just left it up this year, public, where you can look at, yeah, there's a lot of cool movies out. So just, you know, trying to watch all of them and, and definitely rank all of them, because that's the, that's the best part, really. You gotta rank them. As was very clear from us talking about Disney ranking bullshit, we like <laughs> lists. <laughs> we like doing that. Uh, and you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting platforms to keep listening um, if you're listening on Talk Film Society, you might listen to all the other great shows here on the network, including, like I said, Dream a Little Deeper, wow, the great Disney podcast. Uh, they, they're they kind of sporadic with their release, the kind of like they did a second season a couple of years ago that uh, ended up with uh, Fox and the Hound. So they haven't gotten to the Disney Renaissance era yet. Whenever they return, I'm sure it'll be fun. Uh, Alex and Tara, um, shout out to them. And uh, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for... You know, the first two seasons of this show and all the old double-edged double bill stuff is all archived on there. And you can listen. And if nothing else, if you can't, you know, support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. But the free way to help us out is to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility. Uh, and to make sure that we don't, you know, get uh, pricked too easily by a spinning wheel. <laughs> oh no, Thomas, watch out. There's a spinning wheel uh, appearing magically in front oh, of you. I don't know. I'm so drawn to it. Why did it turn green all of a sudden? My light bulb isn't green. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, everybody, uh, we should tease our next episode is our eye for indie for Disney, uh, which is, uh, you know, we, we decided to shuffle things around uh, with distinguishing indie for a major conglomerate like Disney 
celebrating, we should mention its 100th anniversary. We didn't mention that's why we're doing Disney <laughs> this season. Yep. Happy years. birthday, Disney. <laughs> Happy birthday. Yeah, doing great. Great year for Disney. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, the Eye for Indie pick that we're talking about is from a Disney sort of subsidiary that was acquired uh, by them. And then they this subsidiary, Miramax, ended up releasing Clerks in 1994, an episode behind the curtain we've already recorded. That was the first one we, we recorded due to guest availability uh, with Tori Tapina. Shout out. Um, a lot of fun with that episode. I've edited it. Uh, it is going to be our longest episode because there's a lot of Kevin Smith lore. <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah. And uh, you get to hear me watch these move, watch the three Clerks movies for the first time. Yes. So. <laughs> That's the experiment we <laughs> tested for Brian of like of the View Askew movies. He only watched the three movies with Clerks in the title. <laughs> right. Because I have seen... I'd previously never seen a Kevin Smith movie. Yes. So, so we decided to just like do the three movies work as an individual trilogy. Find out <laughs> next time. Find out. Yes. Uh, but until then, Brian, it's time we uh, leave people on this note, you know, this distant once upon a dream note as we float off in blue or pink. Where do we go with? Make it blue? Make it blue. I don't make know. It make blue. it pink. Make it blue. Make it pink. Ha, ha, ha.